2: this is The Other Side of Midnight. There's a lot of news out there. Uh, If you have been following the drama surrounding redistricting here in New York State, a rather blockbuster decision by the New York State Court of Appeals yesterday, uh, which we're going to break down, which is going to impact the congressional elections in New York State. Dr. Anthony Fauci saying the pandemic is over, although maybe not. And uh, a lot of people are about this Johnny Depp defamation case, and that's just the news that's happening on this planet. First, let us begin by looking up at the ska- uh, looking up at the stars and going to space, and we are very pleased, as we are regularly, to be joined by. A gentleman who knows more about space than just about anybody on the radio. He also has, bar none, the best voice of anybody on the radio. Uh, Very pleased to be joined once again by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space. Steve, it is great to talk with you again, my friend.
3: Frank, good to be back here on 77 WABC. We're here in Sedona, Arizona and just completed another one of our nighttime programs here for guests. And what a beautiful night it is, and I'm hoping the same for the audience of uh, 77 WABC.
2: Tell me about those nighttime programs. What do you guys do out there in Sedona, Arizona, exactly? For which, what does the program consist of?
3: Well, it's a beautiful celebration, Frank, of the nighttime sky, because Sedona is one of the world that is a international dark sky community, meaning they shelter the light so people can cherish this great resource that we have which is seeing the night sky. So I'm asked over 10 years, I've been coming to this one location and it's called the Wild Resort and Spa. We've done this for so many uh, locations here in Arizona, but let's go out with the high powered lasers under the beautiful clear skies, the telescopes and do the whole story that we do here on this radio show, sharing with people the need to look up and to cherish the skies and kind of get us away from so much of the world's political news and all the other things that uh, we all try to say, well, why can't we all just get long stuff? But uh, people seem to enjoy this. And I'm privileged and honored to be with you, Frank, and the listeners here.
2: Wonderful. Uh, well, we're honored to have you as always. All right. now, I one of the first things that's on my mind, I got a whole bunch of emails yesterday from listeners listening on the radio, right. not over the app, not on the website all of whom saying they had a difficult time hearing the radio transmission, hearing the radio signal. Uh, we had our engineers, I drove them crazy today, investigating all of our equipment and what's happening at the transmitter. The answer came back, our equipment's working fine. And I said, well, I wonder if that could have possibly been a solar flare. What's happening in in terms of solar activity right now? And could the transmission issues we experienced yesterday have been due to a solar flare?
3: It's probable, Frank, but I doubt that. But here's what's going on in the sun. As we talked about in our last episode, solar cycle 25 is just really on the uptick. And for all the scientists that predicted that this might have been a milder solar cycle than in the previous cycle 24, No, it's just quite the opposite. So just right now, as we're talking live, we have an opportunity now, if people go to various websites, you'll see a full-disc image of the sun. And the sun is populated with a lot of these big sunspot groups. And over the week, I have a solar telescope, Frank, that I look peering into the sun safely. It's called the Hydrogen Alpha Telescope. And I've been studying these sunspot groups, but out of this particular group, there's like three or four massive groups on the sun right now. And some of the important ones that are producing these flares or geomagnetic storms, are moving to the right side or going to go around the other side of the sun. But guess what? There's more coming from the other side. And just the other day, we had a dual M-class flare, which isn't quite as powerful as an X. So it is possible. But what we know about radio, to answer your question, there were radio disruption in the 20 megahertz ranges. And I gather that's certainly not the frequency that, of course, 77 WAPC is on. But it had severe uh, radio interruptions as these solar flares you know, send out so much energy from the sun, they kind of crack all the upper atmosphere. Hmm. So in many cases, radio and ham radio operators know this better. They sometimes use the skip of the ionosphere, just like this radio station signal gets heard all over with its great power. But in this particular case, I don't think, Frank, that that may may have been the major cause. But I would be surprised, if not stumped, if indeed it was due. And I guess what I can say in simple English, we can expect more, you know, induction of these type events to come as opposed
2: to less. All right. Well, hey, uh, the the investigators will continue investigating, if that's the case. Yeah. By absolutely. the way, uh, Steve is going to join us for the hour. So if you have questions about anything related to space, the stars, uh, or astronomy, you can give us a call, 1-800-848-WABC. We'll try and get to as many of your calls as we can. That's 1-800-848-9222. What causes that type of solar activity? I mean, I know the sun is a star, and I know yeah. it's the one that we're we're closest to, but what what makes it behave differently at certain parts of the years than uh, certain parts of the year, or in other years than than it does at other times?
3: Great question. The surface of the sun, if you can even imagine that, it's just this bubbling mass of too hot to burn. The surface of this photosphere, as we see when we hopefully don't stare at the sun, the bright disc we see, is about twelve thousand degrees Fahrenheit. But sunspots, Frank, are these cooler regions that are actually porous into that big cloud of gas, and those, they look dark because they're cooler, and they're about six to 8,000 degrees Fahrenheit. But what happens is when these sunspots, they're propagating magnetic fields all around them. So if we could see in the light, which we don't see other than we see visible light, we would see all these seething magnetic fields like the spider webs across the top. And what happens is, very simply, is when those spider webs of magnetic fields snap or come together, They release a tremendous amount of energy, and I'm talking like one solar flare, even for a fraction of a second, could be that of the energy, get a load of this, of maybe a hundred million atomic bombs going off at one time with the energy that then moves up through the sun. And then it then propagates up to something we call the solar corona, which is sometimes described as the sun's atmosphere, and that's even hotter than the surface of the sun. That's a big quandary in physics. But then all that energy, big packets, is sent up. The simplest explanation would be like taking a garden hose and taking a fine focus of that water and just spraying something, maybe a person or somebody or something, the energy that's coming out. Of course, it's not water. That gets pulled into the Earth's poles or it can disrupt the atmosphere in the simplest way we can talk about it. And it's something that is on the uptick, as I said before, not to alarm listeners, but The important part of this is that the solar forecasters are saying that there should be a higher frequency of this particular solar storms thing than they predicted uh, for this solar cycle 25. And we might be a sitting duck if one of those CMEs, coronal mass ejections, blasts off in the general direction. It's like taking a shotgun. And if we're in the line of fire directly in that line of fire, we get the most damage. And in this case, we hope that they're glancing blows, not direct hits.
2: Well, what would what, what would that look like? What would a direct hit from one of those CMEs look like on our planet?
3: Well, if we go back to the great 1859 Carrington event, probably the most prolific event, Frank, that was recorded in what we call semi-modern times. There was a gigantic flare that was observed by the namesake, the Richard Carrington, the observer. This Carrington event that they described in 1859 it was just this massive blast of protons and energy that lit up the atmosphere of the Earth but did something – I think I mentioned this once before. In the pre-Internet days, what did we have? The early Internet days were not computers. They were the telegraph.
4: Mm.
3: And this such, a, such an induction of energy hit the telephone wires and lines and set them on fire in many places around the Earth. And auroras, the Northern Lights as people call them or Southern Lights, were seen as far south as Cuba or even down in Colombia – where they're hardly ever seen before. So if we had one on that scale, it would be uh, simply to say, or simple to say, pretty devastating with our digital world that we live in with electronics,
2: right? Uh, that, that is for sure. We'll take your calls uh, in just a minute uh, at 800 Still four or five lines open if you want to jump on board. 800-848-WABC. What's going on with the James Webb Telescope? Uh, What's the latest since last we've spoken about what images we're seeing from the James Webb Telescope?
3: Well, it's sure, but uh, moving forward very positively, I mean, I'm amazed, Frank, at this. and I'm sure many listeners are that nothing really has gone wrong with the James Webb Telescope. You would imagine such a complicated folding device that had to be unfolded in space. The latest is that they were spending time trying to focus those 18 mirrors And they were picking some obscure star in the heavens, and they were doing, I think this is like the third of seven of these alignment tests. And what they're doing is they're trying to get a focused image on all of these 18 mirrors, and then eventually they're going to focus everything into that one singular point. So it's amazing. All this is happening very positively and very successfully. And I imagine, as we're hearing this, and I don't have an absolute date for confirmation, but it looks like probably early June or in June, we're going to start to see some of the first research projects actually uh, underway. And this would be so amazing as this telescope peers back to the earliest times of what we call the Big Bang post-creation. And what is that? 13.8 billion years ago. We're going to try to peer back almost well. We can't get to the exact, you know, expansion, but I'm sure we'll be getting even as close to maybe as 380,000 maybe 300 million years after the Big Bang, uh, you know, uh, China expansion. So the things are looking very good. So it's positive for James
2: Webb. Take us through that again, if you would, because that's always a subject, and I know we've touched upon it before, but it's always a subject mm-hmm. that I end up getting a lot of questions about it after we end up speaking about it. How can the James Webb Telescope help us see what happened Uh, if not at the time of the Big Bang, shortly after the Big Bang in in cosmic terms? How does that happen?
3: Well, it's a good question, and here's the answer. We look and tried to do this with ground-based telescopes, and we still do. And a ground-based telescope in Chile, Frank, one of the largest ones in the Atacama Desert, one of the driest regions and clearest skies in the world, if you ever want that, you'd want to go there. But the ground-based telescopes, even these big giant telescopes, have to still peer through the Earth's atmosphere. So we have Hubble which has a little bigger than, what, around a 94-inch mirror. The James Webb has a 21-foot mirror. So what's going to happen, very simply, is that the ability for this to see fainter and fainter objects, we call it magnitude. And the, the, the highest positive magnitude that a average person can see on a really dark night, let's say out in the country, would be plus six. Some of the James Webb telescope images may be upwards. Think about this. Ground-based telescopes may give us images of maybe plus 30 on the magnitude scale, but with James Webb with its giant mirror, it's going to be able to peer deeper and deeper into mm. the universe, meaning seeing fainter and fainter objects. And that itself is just amazing. But it's going to be doing this primarily in the infrared, which is the heat signature left over from all these objects that lie out wow. into the universe. And I find that quite fascinating.
2: Absolutely. And I'm sure the
3: listeners do, too. Uh,
2: absolutely. eight hundred eight four eight wabc Let's begin with Bill in Huntington. Hello, Bill.
3: Oh, how are you doing? Good morning, Bill. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, all right.
5: Now, when I was a teenager, I learned a mnemonic for the spectral types of stars, right, that go from O for a blue-white star like Vega Mm -hmm. down through G. Mm which is the Earth's sun, mm-hmm. down to red dwarfs like Bernard's star, which is M. Okay. Now, now, just before I ask the question,
3: tell me what mnemonic you learned. Well, here's the thing I can remind you of. An astronomer named Harlow Shapley, when he was teaching college classes, he came up with this mnemonic, as we call it, spectral classes. And just let everybody know this, So this is interesting. Spectral classes go now. There's so many subcategories, but they start off, let's say, with W and O. But Harlow Shapley had this mnemonic. It was something like this. Oh, boy, kiss me right now, sweetie. And he had a few other letters in there because it was O, B. And you went down the spectral class line. But now today, I don't think there's any simple mnemonic because I think it starts with W class. These are super hot stars. And it goes all the way down to these tiny, tiny little red dwarfs that are almost I should even say brown dwarfs that are almost invisible. But don't you think, Bill, that this is fascinating, that even the astronomers could come up with this categorization of stars. It's like taking different types of animals in the world, like in zoology, and coming up with all these different species, Mm. and they're doing this with objects that are nowhere near the Earth. But that's basically what that mnemonic was. It was something that people remembered even in high school and college when they took astronomy. Okay. What I
5: learned was, oh, be a fine girl, kiss me now. And mm-hmm. the end yeah. type they've they've deleted from the list. But okay, right. here's the question. Okay. Now there's there's a whole long series of recorded lectures by mm-hmm. the teaching company. Do you know yes. what this is? No yes, sir, I do not and know and that about at all. Hello? Bill, um I'm real, with you, I just Bill.
2: want to get to some other people as well, Bill. Can we get to your question quickly?
5: Okay. I saw this, uh, okay, there was this lecturer, he says, we can't use, oh, be a fine girl, kiss me anymore, because it's too
3: sexy. (laughs) you're probably right bill in today's world and i I say we're not allowed to remember it anymore (laughs) all right bill that's interesting but hey it does help don't you think frank it It would help
2: it it certainly would sometimes the more controversial uh (laughs) and and mnemonic is the easier it is to remember uh (laughs) 800-848-WABC louis is driving on i-95 hello louis
5: Hi, Louis. Hello, Good Frank. Hey, Dr. Sky. I feel privileged to be able to get to talk twice on your radio
2: show. Thank you very much.
4: It's hey, great to have pleasure. you. My Thank My
5: pleasure. You.
2: you bet. Can you hear me? Yeah, Louie, What's your question? Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, oh, sorry,
5: we're ready. Sorry. Okay, my question <laughs> is: is uh, is the ESA, the European Space Agency, still uh, sending a mission uh, to uh, Europa, the uh, water uh, moon, if there's life, or or if just to scope it out? Yes, I was, I I've been they are. and I don't get any information on
3: it. Yes, they are. And, and something interesting, too, a, a Col- a Congressman Culberson in Texas, he was one of the originators for the American mission to Europa. And we have to remind everybody that this is interesting, Louis, that of all these different satellites, of all these different planets or these small moons, the two most prolific ones that might look like they have some sort of subterranean or sub-ocean life is definitely Europa. And there's also going to be a mission to another object called Titan, which is actually the largest satellite in the solar system that has an atmosphere. And that's going to, I believe, could be called the Dragonfly mission. And it'll make that Ingenuity helicopter. That's a first iteration of, you know, landing and taking off in the form of a helicopter. This one, like a dragonfly, will be able to fly all over places like the, the moon Titan. But I'm interested, like many people, to see just what the heck is under the ices of Europa And that also has a lot to do with Kubrick's film when we talk about 2001 Mm. and 2010. So that's fascinating stuff, Louie. Yes, you're on board.
2: Absolutely. A couple of months ago, we talked a little bit about the NASA DART program. And then we went off on a little Mm -hmm. bit of a tangent on all the great movies that uh, have asteroids hurtling towards the Earth over the years. Mm -hmm. All those disaster films, all those science fiction Mm -hmm. films. Now it appears China is developing its own asteroid de- de- deflection mission or deflection system. What exactly is China doing?
3: Well, it's kind of a replication in my part, you know, from what I've read. Like, this is interesting, and it, and it's a new story that keeps coming in, so there's not a final, final analysis on this. But just like the DART mission that we're sending out there to this little tiny dual asteroid system, Didymus and Timorphos, they're also going to have a kinetic device that slams into an object, meaning a small asteroid or a small moon of an asteroid, to just see how much you can push it away or tug it. And I find that fascinating, but I hope they can do both countries or both nations, United States and China, or whoever else is doing it. When you think? Do it pretty quick, because who knows what's lurking out there in the cosmos. And even a small asteroid, as we'll probably talk more about some strange objects that have come from Not just this solar system, but other star systems, China. And you got to give them credit for this. You know, not politically we're talking here. We're just talking technology. I mean, they've done some amazing firsts. Like take the Mars mission, for example. They were the first nation to do all the the different levels, like send a spacecraft, an orbiter, a lander, and a rover in one fell swoop. And also do this on the other side of the moon, the so-called far side, not the dark side. And this technology that they're also developing uh, hopefully will save mankind, just like our DART mission, even if in the smallest way. We really should salute all the technology that's happening on this.
2: Uh, China is obviously a country that we occasionally find ourselves at loggerheads with. And there cool. certainly could be some concern about China having this asteroid deflection system in space. Is there yes. is there um, a, a fear that China could use this to shoot down other people's satellites, either private businesses or other governments or any other things. Is that something that's been vowed at all? And is there anything you could say to reassure us?
3: Well, I don't think I can reassure anybody on this one, Frank, because let me say this, they're looking at deflecting a larger object. But guess what? They actually do have, according to reliable sources, and again, I get most of my information, not just from the Internet, but talking to space professionals, what we believe china also has is a spacecraft that has the grappling hook or the a robotic arm and that it's also being tested in in orbit who knows what nefarious purposes or if it's a simply peaceful one maybe it's just one that goes out there to grab space junk but in light of the political situation around the world i would put my thinking cap on and think wow if i wanted to take out one of our so called or very secret you know uh, spy satellites as we call these different uh, you know, spacecraft that are put up there for imaging the ground. Who knows what could happen? But uh, I doubt very much if that asteroid deflector would be a you know a, a thing to take down the satellite. It's, it, uh,
2: the New York Post reporting that today uh, NASA is going to be keeping an a watchful eye on an asteroid that is going to make what they describe as a knee wobbling close pass of Earth today. Uh, the space rock. 2008 AG-33 is apparently up to 2,500 feet long, making it twice the size of the Empire State Building. According to reports, Mm -hmm. it's expected to scorch past at a safe distance and poses uh, no threat. Is this something that um, we're going to be able to see? And is this something that NASA could be wrong about? Could this be a little too close for comfort?
3: Probably not wrong, Frank. And again, these spacecraft, I mean, these asteroids, as we talk about, it's interesting. I I was barking up a tree about a couple of weeks ago talking about this with friends saying we have every week we have some sort of nefarious asteroid that's coming close to us. But in this case, I can pretty much rest assured everybody on 77 WABC that there's probably no harm or danger in this. They come, this particular asteroid's probably within millions of miles of the Earth, and that's a good thing. But the one that we really have to be of concern or look at with concern is the Apophis asteroid that's going to pass us on April the 13th of 2029. This object, about the size of a nuclear aircraft carrier, over 1,000 feet long, will come, get a load of this, I didn't make it up, within some 19,000 miles. I will repeat that, 19,000 miles of the Earth. At one time, it was thought that on its successive pass, which would happen later in time, maybe like around 2036, That if it went through this little gravity area of the Earth's orbit, it could then come back and hit us. But that one is really close. And that, to answer your question, that's an object that we would be able to see in the nighttime sky. Europe and, say, Africa are the best. They already have this figured out. If you were standing in a dark sky there, you would stand out at night and you could actually watch the object moving across the sky, not as a super bright star, but it would move some 30 degrees of motion each hour. So if you take your thumb and index finger and stretch it out as far as your arm can go, that's 15 degrees against the sky. So two of those distances or diameters in an hour, yeah. that's pretty bizarre and pretty quick. That's pretty close.
2: Absolutely. 80848 WABC will continue with your calls for Dr. Sky coming up in uh, just a bit, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Join for the hour, talking all things space with the man who knows it better than anybody, Steve Cates. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, Frank Sinatra singing Fly Me to the Moon. What better song to introduce Steve Cates, aka Dr. Sky, veteran TV and radio broadcaster and edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space. If uh, you want to hear more from Dr. Sky or learn more from Dr. Sky, you got to check out his blog at ktar.com. There's a ton of interesting stuff on there uh, that uh, if you're into space or the stars or learning more about it or you're curious about it, it's a great resource and uh, there's always an interesting angle on the spatial and cosmic news uh, that's happening out there. Uh, we're taking your calls at eight hundred eight four eight nine 848 one 800 Let's begin with Seth in New Jersey. Hello, Seth.
0: Hey, how are you?
2: I'm doing Good great, morning, thanks.
0: Uh, I have a, a question. I was just wondering how are scientists able to measure the age of the universe if they say, space-time is relative depending on where you are in the universe. And I've also heard that at the point of the Big Bang, space expanded at a rate faster than light itself. So without a consistent reference of time,
3: how do we age the universe? It's a very interesting question. And what we're doing is we're measuring as best as we can through the infrared signature of these objects and the visual signature, light. And we're seeing what happens over the course of time. So what we're seeing, Seth, is that as we go back into the early part of the so-called Big Bang, I like to call it the big expansion, 13.8 billion years ago, light years as we're talking about, astronomers are able to detect through what we call spectral analysis. If you take a picture of, let's say, we all remember from school, we saw this spread spectrum of colors, you know, left, right, blue on one side, red on the other. They're measuring the distance of these objects, and that distance that they measure, let's say they pointed like on a chalkboard or something or on you know, on a wallboard. What they're doing is they're measuring this particular image of spectrum, and however far to the right that shift is in the red shift of light, they're determining how far that object is, and thus in turn meaning how old it is. Now remember, when the so-called big expansion took place, something happened around 380, you know, million years into the expansion when the entire universe just heated up. Is as if, like, you fried something on the, uh, on the stove in the pot, and it's stuck to the, the pan. You burn butter or something, and it's stuck. So we have this thing called the cosmic microwave background radiation that took place around 380 million uh, years after the expansion. But we're able only to get back as far as we can see the object light-wise or at least thermal image-wise. And we're still going to hopefully get better stuff like we talked about with Frank with the James Webb Telescope.
2: Thanks, Seth. Great question. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yes,
5: yeah, Steve, a couple of questions. One is... Uh, Good morning. How the, yeah, how does the moon affect the surface of the Earth uh, well, we, we know about the tides, but uh, there are there other things? Mm-hmm. And also heat retention. Now, from the mm-hmm. sun, if you look, they say some cities retain more heat uh, mm-hmm. than the suburbs because of the concrete. They might be one degree higher or a rock mm-hmm. on the beach. It's, it mm-hmm. stays uh, hot or warm
3: after the sunset. Right. Well, what's happening here is it's something called solar insulation. What that means in simple Earth language is if you take the sun at a low angle, this is not good for people who have you know solar panels on their home. If you have an extremely low sun, you're not getting per square inch or per square meter the amount of energy that's coming from the sun that you can when it's higher. So what happens is when we're talking about the sun as far as its angle in the sky, the moon itself, this is very interesting, the moon itself, if you look at it, when the Apollo astronauts went around the moon, they noticed something very strange. They were sitting there, let's say, the the, the poor guy that had to sit there when the other two were on the surface of the moon, he was pretty lonely, but he noticed as he went around the moon that there were various changes in the gravity. So the moon itself, if you look at it, Joe, does not have a singular strong magnetic or gravity field. It changes. So what I'm saying to you is as that moon gets closer to the Earth, we know that there's exceptional tides or the lack of tides. But otherwise, other than that, there, there is no direct effect that the moon has. It's probably not going to be able to cause any deep earthquakes in the Earth, probably not, except when it gets extremely close to the Earth on these rare occasions when we call it you know, not only a supermoon, but in history the moon has come very close to the Earth. Then I might you know want to vote for the fact that maybe there'll be some earthquake activity because of the extra you know, extra tides. And the extra gravity of the moon, but I don't think we'd have much to worry about. The moon's not going to cause, other than the tides, which we depend on.
2: Thank you, Joe. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Speaking of things that are nearby the Earth, or speaking of things like the moon that we can see. By the way, last week there were some beautiful views of uh, of the moon, uh, a full moon, and then a near full moon for a few days last week. Is really something. What are the things that are worth seeing in the night sky for the next couple of days, either with the naked eye, with binoculars, or maybe even if somebody has a, a telescope and you're always kind enough to give a few other ways that people can watch what's happening in the night sky? What's happening that people can see that's kind of neat?
3: Well, Frank, I'm glad you asked because we're going to have the jackpot,
2: and this is it, ladies and gentlemen.
3: This is the week, and I've been telling so many friends as we had our guests tonight here at the resort. This is the week, folks, to take a look at this great planetary conjunction. I've been getting up early morning around 4 a.m. every day because I don't want to miss it. What you're going to see, looking over to the eastern part of the sky by about an hour before sunrise, maybe even a little earlier than that, we have this most magnificent series of planets lined up. We see lowest to the horizon, Jupiter, bright with the naked eye. Just a little bit to the upper right, and I'll say a little bit because it's get the best I'll say for last. We come across uh, Venus. Still up into the sky and a few degrees to the right of that, along a line, about maybe 20 degrees as you move from the horizon up to the right. The planet Mars, still visible to the naked eye, not super bright. And then a little bit further to the right, upper right, is Saturn. But what's going to happen? This is something I'd say, if we ever gave homework on this show, Frank, I don't think we need to. But (laughs) here's one that really, I think, will really knock the socks off everything. The planets Venus and Jupiter are getting closer every single day. Take a look this morning as you get up if your skies are clear. I think the weather should be good here in the New York area and other places where 77 WABC is broadcasting proudly. These two planets, Frank, are going to get closer and closer, and on the 30th, the morning of the 30th on Saturday, is the big event. Both of these objects will be less than a full moon diameter together, and maybe depending on where you're viewing it, maybe even closer. And to those of us that don't have perfect eyes like myself, They may look like they've merged together. Hmm. So this is really amazing.
2: That Uh, that is neat. So around what time, obviously, you know, I'm sure a lot depends on weather and so forth, but around Mm -hmm. what time on Saturday would you get an optimal view of that planetary alignment?
3: Well, speaking as a generalist here across the nation for this radio station, I would say about an hour before sunrise, you want to look over and get your, you know, your smartphone ready or your cameras or what have you. And you should want to look over to that area of the sky, into the eastern part of the sky. I would say this way. You're going to see these two objects probably about 15 degrees up into the sky. So it's, you need to have a place where you can see a clear view of the sky, no big building in front of you, or find a place like that. But, Frank, it gets even better. And I'm hoping, with your permission, we'll Please. do another yeah. program on this. In May, we get to see the first of two total lunar eclipses. And for this radio audience, get a load of this. On the night of May 15th, late in the night for the East Coast, out here in Arizona, we'll be seeing it normally around 9 p.m. local time in Mountain Time. A total eclipse of the moon that will take place that will be spectacular. And this happens on a Sunday night late in the evening for the New York area, let's say, on the East Coast. And again, it happens into the early evening for us. But what makes this interesting is it's one of those special eclipses where some people like to call it the blood red moon or the blood moon eclipse there's a lot to talk about this and if you miss that one there's one in in early November I believe I'm not checking this you know i looking at any computer here but I believe it's the night or the morning of November the 8th but Frank we got some great stuff so summary I'd be looking over into that sky as I get up early this morning let's say if you have clear skies but watch over the next few days how quickly Venus is overtaking Jupiter and these two, remember, Venus is closer, obviously. It's planet number two, but Jupiter is now over 500 million miles away. So Venus is doing most of the work to get close. But isn't that incredible? Jupiter, the god of God Zeus, Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, all in the sky. Don't miss it. It's
2: really beautiful. Absolutely. That's wild. 800-848-9222. Lisa is in Nutley, New Jersey. Hello, Lisa.
10: Hey, guys. How are you?
2: Great. Thanks. Good for morning.
10: Good morning, Lisa. Hi, uh, no, good. Yes. Um, question: If we start mining from minerals on the moon,
2: mm-hmm.
10: just okay. We, how sorry, long does it, uh okay. What?
2: We're just repeating. Hear you. Please Yeah, repeat. we, we didn't hear. What oh, you said.
10: okay, good. Um, yeah. As if we land on the moon and we start mining minerals, how long does a human body, or is the human body allowed to stay up there before the gravity starts to affect our muscles?
3: You know, that's very interesting. The only thing I can tell you, Lisa, is Scott Kelly probably has the best answer. And if we read his book, Endurance, he had the previous record of having to stay up in space. And it's pretty much the same thing. But on the lunar surface, that's interesting. We haven't had anybody that stayed on the moon other than, let's say, hours at a time, many, many hours, all the way up to the Apollo 17. But remember, you weigh one-sixth your weight that you would weigh on the Earth on the lunar surface.
11: But that's a very interesting
3: question because... A lot of things, this is what they're really doing. but A lot of people don't realize this. One of the big research projects on the ISS is to see how long people can handle the same thing you're asking about, Lisa. What happens to muscles and, and on the in the legs? And apparently I'm not a medical doctor, but you get atrophy of the muscles of the legs. Just ask uh, Mark Benheid, who came back from now the longest American in space. You see them in these chairs when they land in those Russian spacecraft on the on the ground. They have to grab them and actually carry them because your legs are so weak. So what's fascinating is, can you imagine, Lisa, just walking on the surface of the moon, doing some exploration, but bringing back minerals from the moon? Here's the, here's the one, Frank and Lisa, that we really need to be working on. Harrison Schmidt, the only geologist to ever go to the moon and walk on it, he said, and I'd agree with him, we need to harvest the isotope called helium-free. And what would that do? Hey, that would give us almost an unlimited amount of power in a fuel source and maybe that would get us away finally from all the petrochemicals, wow. because well, I know friends of mine in California they're paying—I couldn't believe it—they told me they, that they were paying 7.63 a gallon for fuel, and I have no idea what it is on the East Coast, but here in Arizona we're still paying in the high fours and five if you got diesels. So let's go to the. Well, moon. We're they in the upper three.
10: It went down like five <laughs> cents, but not big, Did not it? much. Wow.
5: Well, thank
2: you, Lisa. Um, You know, it is interesting. You alluded to the Hubble Space Telescope earlier in Mm -hmm. the context of the James Webb Telescope. Uh, There are some interesting images coming through the Hubble Space Telescope, including a record large comet. Is that right?
3: Absolutely. And, you know, now the Hubble comes up and... It's, still, it's time to be center stage. You know, they say, what? Everybody's famous for fifteen minutes. Well, the Hubble's back in that category. Because what it did, it's imaged one of the most bizarre objects, Frank, in the entire solar system. Recent discovery. I have an opportunity opportunity to interview the co discoverer of this. It's a comet called Bernardinelli Bernstein. And it's a rather bizarre object because the Hubble took some images, I believe, back in January. Its official name in the astronomy world, for everybody out there who's you know very sensitive to this, is C-2014-UN-271. I'd rather call it Comet Bernardinelli-Bernstein, the namesake of the two observers. So we had the gentleman, uh, Dr. Bernstein, on from the University of Pennsylvania. What's so important about this discovery is that this comet <laughs> this is amazing. I mean, I'm proud to say this. It's the largest nucleus of a comet that's ever been imaged. We look at Halley they call it mankind's comet why because it's like a life cycle at least years ago 76 years we, we live longer than that thank god at least for most of us but the nucleus of Halley's was maybe upwards of four miles in diameter that's still big the, the comet what we call comet hel that was that wouldn't go away in the late 1990s was allegedly to be 40 miles in diameter but what about this one upwards of 85 miles in diameter and no, it's not headed toward the Earth that we have to worry. But the Hubble took images of this when it's like two billion miles away. And that's incredible because they know that something's happening. It's outgassing even out there in the cold of space where you never see that happen until comets get closer. So that's what uh, kudos to Hubble. That's a pretty cool uh, I- image.
2: Jay is in Portville, New York. Hello, Jay. Yeah,
3: how you doing, Frank?
2: Uh,
8: salutations to a Thursday morning.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and, thank Jay, you.
8: You were you were one hundred and forty percent right when you said that Steve is, is a easy listener. <laughs> uh, he could go to the a cemetery at four in the morning and, and read names, and I'd listen
2: to. Him. Same here. Same <laughs> here. We may try that if the ratings dip at all. We may send him to a cemetery. <laughs> A green here's lawn.
12: my question. Here's
8: my question, uh, Doctor. Yes, and it's going to sound kind of elementary. Uh, uh-huh. I'm 71 years old. I've I've laid mm-hmm. on the on the ground and watched the sky during the day and during the night, uh, thousands of yes. hours probably in my lifetime. Uh, and it amazes me. It's it's like everything is in a certain space. How far across? Do you think, you know, we, we know our universes and everything we can see. Mm-hmm. Does it go for infinity, do you think? Or, you know, what's, what's your, your take on that?
3: Jay, again, I salute you as a fellow ground watcher and, and viewer of the sky. <laughs> your question yeah. is incredible. Frank, this man yeah. has got something really cool going on here. Because let me say this, Jay. What we think, when well, no, nobody knows this for sure. I mean, but let's right. be real honest. I talk to so many astronomers and astrophysicists and everything, and a lot of them admit to me privately, and I'm going to say it publicly, they still don't know what the hell makes gravity work. Mm. <laughs> <And> that's interesting. <laughs> so here here's an answer that here's an answer that I think we can all agree on here, and to uh-huh. everybody listening. When the universe expanded thirteen point eight billion years ago, we want to know where it is now. So astronomers say that the edge of the universe as its expansion continues is probably upwards of ninety billion light years as a complete like if we look at the big shebang like a big ball like a beach ball yeah so maybe 45 light year billion light years on one side another 45 billion what's it expanding into heck if anybody really knows and if anybody tells you that they do know gentlemen and listeners i want to meet that person and i want to shake their hand because it, it's it, all an ongoing guess really and
8: and you know what I was told by a professor at St. At Bonaventure University, and I was just a kid in grade school, okay. and I asked him that question, you know, about how big is the universe and, and, and everything that's in it. Is it in a box? He said, you know what, uh, Jay? He said it could be. Everything we know that exists and the mileage out and the, and the light years and the billions and the trillions and everything. He said that could be nothing but a piece of closet dust that just fell off a shelf mm. and it hasn't absolutely. hit the floor yet. I like you, Jay.
3: That's pretty good.
8: Abs- because absolutely. Oh, very
2: clever. I mean, some I mean, good, good points. And, I,
8: and I've, ne- I've never forgot that in 71 years. My, my real well, question is this, and I hate to take up all this time, Frank. I know. I know what it is. Hmm. Uh, my real question was this: When you first come on the radio, you mentioned Sedona. I've been to Sedona; beautiful place. A little hot for me, yes, sir. but it's a nice it's mm-hmm. a nice place. You you yeah. mentioned something about lasers. Uh, were mm-hmm. you shooting lasers in the sky at night? Or
3: yes, we are. And let me qualify this because some people may think that you know. Obviously, the common sense thing is: I had to sign paperwork for these. These are really powerful. They'll go 15 yes. or 20 miles out into the sky. This is no joke. Right. Airpl- now,
8: airplanes is what I was thinking
3: of. Absolutely. You know? I follow every single rule and regulation and respect everything uh-huh. the FAA would say, that we never point these toward aircraft. We use them just for you know educational purposes, like, like Frank edutainment. says, edutainment. But, yes, they're blue lasers that are probably upwards of six to 800 milliwatts, which is pretty powerful. And yeah. the most powerful one I ever saw, I couldn't believe it, back to maybe 20 years ago, we used to go to the Las Vegas Hilton a lot for conventions in a business I was in. Hey, Frank and, and Jay, they had these lasers that would fire clear across the valley
8: wow. in
3: Las Vegas. <laughs> they would hit the mountain. Now, that was a laser, but we don't point them into the
8: uh, aircraft. Yeah, well, and, and, and one more quick thing. The laser, the little red ones that you buy at the, the hardware store, mm-hmm. okay? Like a laser yeah. pointer? Uh, yeah, a laser pointer, basically. I was told by a professor, another another guy that's, that's big into physics and astro and all this stuff, he said if mm-hmm. you knew what was going on uh, on the tip of that, that red thing down in that, that instrument, mm-hmm. he said you'd be amazed uh, what, it, what it is uh, chemically and nuclear and everything mm-hmm. else. He said it's, uh, it's really unreal.
3: I'm not reading it, but it's something like light amplification by simultaneous emission of radiation. I think that's what, what calls it? out laser. But but you're yeah. right, my friend. That's you don't want to use them. See, there's another thing, people use these and I don't wanna, you know, be like doing a public safety thing here. But obviously right. we need to. You know, you have so many yeah. people pointing them at animals, right. so many people pointing right. them at people. And look at what law enforcement has to deal with. God forbid.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Great points. Don't do that. Uh, Great points all. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your calls in a minute. And we'll give you some tips on uh, taking a look at next month's lunar eclipse. Uh, You can mark your calendars accordingly. There's some interesting events going on with respect to that. And uh, a few other subjects that I'm going to pick Steve Cates' brain on. Talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, for the hour if you want to comment. Or, uh, or have a question about anything we're discussing, give him a call 1-800-848-9222 You can also always check out his blog at ktar.com This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead We are
1: New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC Now, here's Frank Morano.
13: She packed my bags last
14: night We flight Zero out.
11: On
13: such a time I'm
2: The great Elton John singing Rocket Man. He's no William Shatner, but he holds his own. Uh, talking about all things space with Steve Kates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. You can check out the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. Uh, we'll squeeze in as many of your questions as we can for the next nine minutes. 800 848 But, Steve, I did want to ask you about uh, yes. the lunar eclipse next month. I think the date is May 15th. Is that right? It is,
3: Frank, and I guess your show's on the air probably as this is going to happen, but here we go. On Sunday evening, May 15th, these are in Eastern Daylight Times, and everybody converted accordingly. At 10.27 p.m., Eastern Daylight Time, on Sunday, May 15th, the left edge of the moon goes into the Earth's umbra. This is the deeper shadow that the Earth has. The outer penumbra, you're not going to miss anything unless you're really a science person. And believe me, most people are not going to notice the difference. It's at 11.29 p.m. on that Sunday evening, May 15th. The total eclipse begins. Then maximum eclipse, 12, 11 a.m. Monday morning the 16th. That's interesting. That's when the blood moon, or however we, I call it, like a Chinese lantern, you'll be able to see in dark locations the moon hanging in the sky like it's some kind of a lantern, and the stars will come out, and that's magnificent. And the total eclipse ends 12.53 a.m. Monday the 16th. And the partial eclipse is over at 1:55 a.m. So I imagine when you come on the air, what Sunday night into Monday morning, that's going to be happening at that particular time as the eclipse slows down and goes the other direction.
2: Well, Amazing. that's that, that's pretty neat. I'll I'll be watching. And unlike the solar eclipse, where they always caution people not to sure. stick an eye, there's nothing wrong with staring directly at a lunar eclipse, right?
3: No, totally safe for the whole thing. And what you have to pray for and hope for is clear skies because. This is an amazing thing. But again, as we project into the future, in November, I believe it's the 8th, and then we'll get the exact times as we hopefully talk again uh, in the future on that. And don't forget, tomorrow morning or today, for the East Coast and everywhere listening, you have this great planetary conjunction before the sunrise.
2: Absolutely. I think uh, in our area, I think the Liberty Science Center is doing something fun on May 15th for the lunar eclipse. I thought I saw nice. one of our listeners post something about that in our uh, Facebook group. So if people are interested mm-hmm. in, in that, they should contact the Liberty Science Center. Before uh, we run out of time, I wanted to be sure to ask you about this. Uh, just recently, mm-hmm. they confirmed that a meteor came to Earth in, uh, 2014, an interstellar meteor, and the astronomer from Harvard, uh, Avi Loeb, who's been very controversial of late, but he's been, he's very well respected and very highly regarded. He's been a guest on this show. He believes that there's a possibility that this could actually be alien technology. What can you tell us about this meteor? Why did it take us eight years to confirm that it was an interstellar meteor? And why does Avi Loeb think that it could be alien technology?
3: Well, it's still a great quandary, because before the object that we, for the first object that we actually thought was an interstellar object, was an object discovered by a good friend of mine, Dr. Robert Warrick, at the Haliaka Observatory in Hawaii. He discovered something called Oumuamua which means in the Hawaiian native language. And if I didn't get it correctly, the pronunciation, I apologize. It means scout. So this was some pancake-shaped object that came through the solar system and believed was from an interstellar uh, destination. But we find out that back in 2014 in January over New Guinea, some object smaller, maybe one and a half feet in diameter, actually came through the atmosphere. But why Dr. Loeb thinks this and other scientists, and this is where I'm a little confused, we have a general from like Space Force talking and confirming that this was actually the first interstellar object. Why? Because when they do the me- the measurements of the orbit and the deductions, this has a very, very high uh, hyperbolic, remember the word hyperbolic orbit eccentricity. Mm. And it had a rather high one, meaning it didn't come from the sun or the solar system. It was kicked out of another star system. But who knows, because the object is so tiny, maybe a search and rescue crew will go find it someday But I think the way he thinks that is he also believes very strongly that there's something strange with Oumuamua, because here's the bottom line on that. As it was leaving the solar system, by the way, it was discovered not inbound, but it was discovered outbound. It's accelerating as it's going out of the solar system. Normal objects would slow down, but that is fascinating, Frank, isn't it? Oh,
2: it it certainly is. It's squeezing as many calls as we can in the next few minutes. Ari is in Brooklyn. Ari, you're on with Steve Cates.
6: Hello, how you doing, guys? Great. Good morning, Ari. Good morning. Good morning. Great, great show. Big fan. Very Thank, informative. You. And, it. Uh, you Thank you. Appreciate you. You explain stuff very nice. Frank is not bad himself too. <laughs> <laughs> um, you qu- question. Question. Um, when you say in the planetary um, alignment, what do you see? You see like? Uh, do you see like like the moon far away? Yes,
3: you know, Larry, what you
5: see is
6: objects that look like
3: stars, but they're planets, they'll line up, like I said, Jupiter lowest bright, Venus bright, you'll see that with the eye, no problem. But as you go up about 20 degrees up to the right from where the sun would come up, where you first see Jupiter, that line of planets, they look like star-like objects, but they're obviously planets. So they look they look like pinpoints of light, that's the answer.
2: Yeah, I'm going to be getting up early Saturday. Uh, I, I have a tough time going back to a normal sleep schedule on the weekend anyway, but I, I'm going to see yes. if uh, hopefully the weather will be warm enough to allow a, a cigar on my front porch as I do some planet gazing. That'll be a lot of fun. Eight <laughs> hundred eight four eight 848 wabc Les is in New Milford, New Jersey. Hello, Les.
15: Good morning. Um, when
5: scientists
15: talk about gravity, they say it's a distortion of space, and they... Sometimes Mm -hmm. give an example of a sheet of saran wrap that's stretched tight and then a bowling ball Mm -hmm. is sitting on it and it distorts it. And then a marble Mm -hmm. comes along and gets caught in that distorted saran wrap and it goes in a different Mm -hmm. direction. But they don't explain why the bowling ball distorts the saran wrap in the first place. It, It seems like
3: circular reasoning. Mm-hmm. Well, the best I can answer at this early morning, and believe me, folks, this is interesting, unless your, your points are well taken. The, exa- the analogy that you're talking about is interesting. Einstein was one of the first that predicted this, and he predicted that he would check an eclipse of the sun and look at Mercury sitting next to the sun. They found a distinct deflection, and that was the first time they found it. But the interesting part about this is just to put gravity in, in, in summation, it is a warpage of space-time as a massive object or an object comes next to it. Every single object in the universe, no matter what its size, would have some tiny what, infinitesimal number of gravitation warpage because of the space-time curvature that it puts in. So what I'm trying to say in simple English, this is an amazing subject, but truly, Les and Frank and everybody listening, nobody really understands gravity. And if anybody does, well, I'd love to get an email from them. And give me that whole concept, because I'll pass it on to a good guy named Dr. Kip Thorne at Caltech. I remember getting Frank, and I'm honest with the audience always. I got a C-plus in the gravitation book. The textbook was as thick as the white pages was in New York in the (laughs) old days. And I used it and asked him to sign it, and he asked me why. He asked me why I got a C-plus. I said, because I didn't understand gravity. But what do I use it for? I use it when I do programs to have little children stand on it. You get it. Symbolically, that they can be closer to the heavens. How about
2: that? Uh, You know, Steve, uh, a ton of people on hold waiting to talk to you. We're not going to get to them. If people have questions for you, what's the best way for them to reach out to you?
3: Well the email that I suggest is just Doctor Sky Show, D R S K Y Show at gmail dot com. I'm certainly you know happy. I'm honored. Mm. To be able to, you know, respond to questions that people have. And it's always a privilege and honor here, Frank, being on 77 WABC. Well, it's our honor. As Steve, know,
2: the, uh, yes. the, I'm sorry, we're out of time. I appreciate it very much. We'll do it again soon.
3: This
1: is the Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
2: Tomorrow, everyone. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano, coming back down to earth from the cosmos. Uh, there are a lot of legal issues that have uh, everybody talking and asking a great deal of questions. Now, we have uh, in we have we're being joined this hour by three experts that know how to break down legal issues from absolutely every corner. It, it's been said at times that the only people who know more about the law than lawyers. ...are people that have been in prison. Well, we're going to do you one better. We have, for the hour, assembled a panel of three lawyers who also went to prison. Uh, Fortunately, they have all found their way outside of prison one way or another. Let me welcome... In studio, uh, Dom Crispino. Uh, he's been a guest on the show before. Ex attorney, ex convict, legal commentator. Whose recent, most most recent conviction was recently oh, vacated. Congratulations on that again, Dom. Thanks, Frank. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming all the way in.
16: That's oh, my pleasure.
2: Uh, also uh, joined uh, in uh, in studio by Andrew McKenna, uh, the author of the book "Sheer Madness," a terrific memoir. He is uh, not only a former uh, a former attorney and and prisoner, but also a Marine veteran, an Air Force veteran, former heroin addict, and uh, as I mentioned, a terrific author. He's the Deputy Director of the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence in Westchester. Hello there, Andrew.
9: Hello, Frank. Good to be with you and Dom.
2: And uh, not yet legally permitted to set foot in the state of New York, I don't believe, is uh, Richard Luthman, former attorney, probably best known as the trial by combat attorney. Uh, he was on recently with us talking about his own case. He, of course, does everybody in the studio one better. He's not only a state convicted felon, but also a federally convicted felon as well. Richard, thanks for joining us.
17: Thanks, Frank good to uh, hear from you.
2: It's great to talk with all three of you. Now, I guess the big legal story that folks are talking about in our area has to do with this decision by the Court of Appeals on gerrymandering. This decision came down uh, late this afternoon, and one of the first shows I heard really break it down was on the uh, the Cats at Night show, and they had, just coincidentally, this was scheduled way before the, the decision yesterday took place, they had in studio Ed Cox, who in addition to being Richard Nixon's former son-in-law, and the plaintiff in this case, he was the co-host of the Cats at Night show. This is Ed Cox, the former chairman of the New York State Republican Party as well, breaking down this decision on uh, gerrymandering that came down from the Court of Appeals.
7: Breaking news is that the highest court of New York State just handed down an extraordinary common-sense decision
9: that's going to give the voters of New York... Fair districts with respect to the state Senate and with respect to the congressional districts. The legislature, they had
7: used their supermajority to really gerrymander the heck out of the state Senate districts. And the same with the congressional districts. The voters in New York will now have fair districts to
9: vote for the candidate they want. You mean you won't have a
2: a congressional district in five different counties? No, they're going to be compact. They're going to be contiguous. Uh, well, uh, what does this mean for the upcoming elections? What does this mean for the date of the primary? I'm going to break down the political implications with Tom Swazi around 430. But let me begin with you, Dom. Uh, what was your take on the Court of Appeals decision? is a Court of Appeals. As I understand, all the judges that ruled on this case were appointed by Governor Cuomo. It was a five to three decision, right? A four, four, three. four three, Excuse me. So break us down for us. What do you think of the, the merits of the Court of Appeals argument and, and the dissent, if you want to comment on it?
16: I think they got it right. I mean, uh, the surprising thing to me was that Janet DeFury was on
2: the right side and wrote the uh, majority opinion. Um, and for people that don't know her history, she was a Westchester D.A. She had been a Republican. Now she's a Democrat, and she was a Democrat at the, point, at the time that she was appointed by Governor Cuomo.
16: Yeah, so uh, she seems to do politically expedient things, in my opinion. And this one wasn't. No, this one was the correct call. Uh, those, uh, there was a travesty what they did with those maps, um, and and the way they just like blew through the uh, um, the constitutional amendment that required it be done a certain way. Um, I think what it's going to do is I, the primary is probably going to have to be delayed. I think the the judge appointed a, a master, special master to draw lines. Um, and uh, I got to think that this might the primaries might happen in August
2: now instead of June. Uh, Richard Luthman, you, you've actually I think represented uh, me in some political cases before the Court of Appeals. What did you think of this uh, of this decision from the Court of Appeals? And uh, did you have a chance to read the dissent as well?
17: Yeah, I, I agree. I think the court did get it right. Uh, I don't think that the Democrats did themselves any favors. Uh, uh, talking about this case, I think uh, the Democratic uh, majority leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins basically came out and said, "We're doing this to, you know, give the Democrats an advantage to get rid of the Republicans." And I think that, you know, uh, almost ironically, I think this actually might help the New York City uh, Democratic delegation in in the uh, in, in the Congress because the way that the lines were drawn before. There was a good chance that, uh, New York 11, the Staten Island district, uh, might have went, uh, Democrat because it, 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 it uh, fingered up into, into Park Slope and to very liberal parts of Brooklyn. Now it's, it looks like it's going to probably stay Republican, which gives, uh, Nicole Malliotakis, uh, uh, keeps her seat in the, uh, in, in Congress as the only Republican, uh, in the delegation, but it gives the, the, the New York City Democrats somebody to go to. Uh, to to get their uh, some of their legislative agenda passed if this red wave happens, right. right? So I think it might might actually end up helping the Democrats, uh, you know, unintentionally.
2: But explain to folks uh, whoever wants to jump in on this. You know, uh, I think a lot of people, wherever they fall on the political spectrum, they recognize that gerrymandering is wrong, morally wrong, ethically wrong, and that it really takes away power from voters. But what did the Court of Appeals say here about why gerrymandering is actually legally prohibited and then the other corollary question to that is why do the gerrymandered state assembly districts get to stay but the senate districts and the congressional districts are struck down here whoever wants to comment on that please jump in Hmm. richard anything (laughs) on you
17: well gerrymandering of course is is uh is is wrong it's something that is uh you know there's there's a a basic concept of, of one person one vote and uh, the the whole goal is to not disenfranchise uh people or groups uh and so drawing lines that, that cut in and out based on you know certain uh you know areas certain uh, g- uh, geographic areas where there's a predominance of one a class protect particularly protected class uh, based on race or or, or or something like that it becomes a it becomes an issue uh we see that all over there's there's a, a litany of law from the supreme court down now the 2014 amendment to the new york state constitution uh wanted to try to do away with this uh this really political uh, gerrymandering by having an independent uh commission uh, do the work and the independent commission was supposed to draw lines in a, in a, in a, in a, a either, an, I, I guess, a bipartisan or a nonpartisan way. Uh, but they basically threw their hands up and said, well, we can't do this. And, uh, they basically failed in, in, in their obligation, uh, what the voters wanted in, in 2014. Everybody agrees that, that, that gerrymandering is bad. And we had, a legal mechanism in place that the voters put in the state constitution. Well,
2: and and the way that that uh, process played out, the Democrats that were part of that independent bipartisan commission really had very little incentive to work w- and come up with a deal with the Republicans because the Democratic state legislature got to pick and draw the lines, which is subsequently what happened. But uh, anybody have an answer for me on why the assembly lines uh, were not also thrown out?
16: Yeah, I, I, I think it's because the assembly districts are smaller and I think much more responsive to to the uh, the process. The The Senate districts are larger and, and can be manipulated more easily. I mean, that, that's the logical answer to that question. As to specifically why they were not in there,
2: I really don't know. Yeah, because that was the case even with the the appellate division, uh, the appellate division situation as well. All right, we'll come back to this. I'm going to ask Tom Swazi about this uh, in the four o'clock hour as well. Uh, big celebrity trial that everybody has been talking about is this Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. A psychologist hired by Johnny Depp's legal team says that Amber Heard showed signs of personality disorder in her evaluation. Yesterday was day nine of this very high-profile celebrity trial in Northern Virginia. Depp is suing his ex-wife for defamation. Because of an article she wrote for the Washington Post four years ago about surviving domestic abuse. So, yesterday, a forensic psychologist took the stand and said she evaluated the actress for 12 hours and that she showed signs of borderline personality disorder and histrionic personality disorder. So far, Heard has not yet taken the stand. Here's a little bit of Johnny Depp and what he had to say
14: My goal is the truth. My goal is the truth. Because it, it it killed me that people that I had spoken with, that I had met with over the years, who I who maybe were in a not such a great position and they needed advice, and I gave them the best advice I could. Um, all I could think of was that those people would 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 think that I. Um, it was a fraud and that I had lied to them.
2: Uh, Andrew McKenna, let me begin with you. I know you were a, a prosecutor down there in uh, Virginia for a time. What's this case all about? How do you see it going?
9: A couple interesting things to me. Uh, number one in defamation cases, if Heard can prove that uh, what she wrote and what was published in the Washington Post was true, then she will win. It's an absolute defense to defamation is truth. I think a couple of things come to mind. One, it's interesting where the case was brought in Virginia in Fairfax. Uh, that's where the Washington Post is published or printed, at least, and published um, nationally. Uh, but Virginia has what's called um, an anti-slap law, which strangely ironic to the allegations in this case. But it stands for strategic lawsuits against public participation, basically. Um, which gives um, Heard greater uh, latitude in making accusations, greater First Amendment protections, essentially. Um, But still, it was brought in there, and then she countersued there as well. Uh, One thing that's curious to me is, is how he's going, if he wins, if Depp wins the defamation suit, how he's going to quantify his losses. Clearly, his reputation's been injured. But I don't know if um, he can show that he hasn't been given possibilities in or films, and his career has actually been damaged.
2: So it, it sounds like Amber Heard is probably going to have to testify herself in this case. Then,
9: oh, for sure she's going to have to mm-hmm. and be very,
2: very convincing. Dom, uh, what's your take on this situation? Well, I have to agree with Andrew. Um,
16: I, I think that um, it, it really boils down to a couple of issues. It's 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 really the truth and and the damages. Even if even if he prevails. On the claim, um, I, I do have to say though that this is this is really a mirror into Hollywood. <laughs> <It> <laughs> and, really is, and uh, it's it's odd. I mean, after you see so many, well, tr-
2: what are some of the highlights and lowlights? What's odd about it?
16: Well, I mean, um, just the testimony and the rambling and the um, the you know, I, I know you're testifying in your own behalf, but it's almost like a it's like a a, 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 a sweet, delicious. Uh, personal thing in there you know and when,
9: right and he's testifying with su- such
16: effect yeah it's, it's, you
2: well know. yeah he's been accused of overacting oh it's uh, awful Th- this is uh, some more of uh, johnny depp
14: and it's been six years of trying times three strange when one day you're uh Cinderella, so to speak, and then in 0.6 seconds, you're Quasimodo.
17: Richard, how do you see this case playing out? Well, I think that uh, Depp is, it has. I think he probably has charmed the jury at this point. Uh, we haven't heard from Amber Heard yet, but I, I think that uh, I disagree to the extent, I think that he's made his case for damages. I think that he said, uh, because of the the abuse allegations, I was... Uh, uh, made guilty until proven innocent. You know, Johnny Depp. I I had built the character of of Captain Jack Sparrow from nothing. I created that character, and then Disney dropped me in a heartbeat. And what we've seen in the testimony from him and from the the police officers who responded to the scene, it doesn't appear as if uh, he was engaged in in, in any physical abuse of Amber Heard. It's just the opposite. It looks like Amber Heard was the one physically abusing Johnny Depp. Now, uh, I, I think that, uh, he's, he's, you know, he's a totally excellent thespian and, and it, and it comes across because he's made a clown show out of Amber Heard's lawyers, especially when, uh, with, with respect to hearsay objections, uh, and with respect to just, uh, turning their questions that are trying to make him look bad on their head. There was one point in the trial where they asked him about doing drugs with Marilyn Manson. And he said, yes, I did cocaine with Marilyn Manson. And then I gave him some pills to make him shut up. And everybody started laughing. <laughs> I think I think he's charmed the jury. And I don't think Amber Heard is going to climb out of the hole that's been dug for her.
9: Her body language, too, um, sitting there at the defense table is awful. So,
2: I mean, obviously she's got to know that uh, Johnny Depp has money and can hire good lawyers. Why do you think she, if this wasn't true, the domestic abuse allegation, why would she go about making a claim like this in such a public way, uh, knowing that uh, there was going to be some sort of retribution? Do you think it's a reflection of mental illness, or is it it something else here? It could be, but one other point, the therapist
9: that examined her for numerous hours, didn't find any signs of PTSD. So that was one thing that she left out. Um, but I think, you know, this is an extension of their case from years ago in England um, when Johnny Depp sued the paper over there mm. uh, for calling him a wife beater. And so even though that was a case between Depp and I believe it was the Sun newspaper over there, um, they basically had a mini uh, trial between Hurd and Depp over that same thing. I think it's ego. I think it comes down to ego. And it's a civil case. So it's did it happen? It's more likely than not. It's the standard, the burden of proof. And once she's sued, she may as well counter it. And, you know, it's
2: very interesting. Uh, we're, we're gonna continue throughout the hour with Andrew McKenna, Richard Luthman, and Dominic Crispino. If you have questions about any of the legal cases we're touching upon, uh, you can give us a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. We'll try and get to as many as you, of your calls as we can. Our panel of ex-attorneys and ex-felons was, it will be in studio for the hour, 800-848-9222. This is the other side of midnight, straight ahead.
1: This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano 77 WABC. Hear ye! Hear ye! The Colt's in session! The coats in session! Now here come the judge. Here come the judge. Here come the judge.
4: Stop beating that bird. here come the judge.
2: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno, breaking down some of the big legal issues in the news, uh, joined by a very distinguished panel of legal experts. They all happen to be former attorneys. Uh, Richard Luthman is joining us. He was on recently with us talking about his case. Richard, any news on your case at all since the last time we spoke?
17: Yes. The uh, Richmond County Supreme Court was supposed to uh, have a hearing on a on, uh, motion tomorrow, but that actually got postponed until next Friday. So next Friday, May 6th, is going to be a big day uh, for me in Richmond County. Uh, and, and if
2: people didn't hear our previous interview, you're trying to take back uh, your plea, which uh, was made remotely due to a COVID rule, and, and when you were in Pennsylvania, which is not uh, permitted under the under the statute, right?
17: Well, well I was in federal custody in right. Pennsylvania, that's that's the big issue. Right, you that, weren't uh,
2: vacationing in the Poconos.
17: Yes, <laughs> I, I was uh, a resident of Allenwood. Uh, uh, facility.
9: Oh, one of the worst.
17: Uh, uh, well.
9: But you probably weren't at the penitentiary,
17: but... No, I wasn't in the pen. I was in the, in the low, which uh, it wasn't so great, no but uh, not yet. as bad as the pen.
2: <laughs> I, I can imagine. Uh, Andrew McKenna, the voice you just heard there, is the deputy director for the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence in Westchester. Looks like a lot of people are still doing drugs and uh, abusing alcohol. Andrew, what's the story? You've got to work a little harder, I guess.
9: I've got to work harder and let people know that there's there's hope out there, you know, and um, the National Council uh, in Westchester is doing a lot of outreach, a lot of work, and working closely with the county as well. So,
2: uh, Dom Crispino also here, also, by the way, a former candidate for New York State Assembly as a Republican in, uh, in Manhattan. And uh, you're doing an upcoming debate on the uh, on the issue of uh, Rikers Island. Is that coming up May 2nd?
16: Uh, yes, it's, uh, it's with the Rikers uh, debate team. It's former incarcerated uh, people in Rikers,
2: and you were incarcerated at Rikers. I was at
16: Rikers for twenty months. had wow. you know, Vacation there, you know, three meals a day. Wow! Um, and um, uh, we have a, a team uh, that does debates criminal justice issues. Uh, and this Monday, uh, May 2nd, we're going to be at the Regis High School, debating the Regis
2: High School debating team. Those those high school debaters are tough, right? Oh, yeah. No, they It's so yeah. cool
16: that
9: you're doing that. I didn't yeah. know. That's awesome.
2: And uh, one of the judges is actually Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Yes, and the former commissioner of corrections, uh, Chiraldi. Wow. Uh, now, speaking of Rikers, since we're talking about Rikers, apparently the situation in Rikers at, or at Rikers has not improved much at all. And uh, there's some thought that the U.S. attorney, Damian Williams, could actually put the feds in charge of Rikers. What exactly is happening from a legal perspective there? What are the next steps in that whole situation?
16: Well, the judge called the commissioner in, and uh, the commissioner came in because when a federal judge orders you to do something, the you commissioner do it. corrections. That's correct because you know most judges think they're god. But federal judges know they are god. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Uh so the they were speaking to the commissioner about what he can do about um improving the situation there. I mean 16 inmates have died in the last year. There's routine uh, routine assaults on officers and staff every day. Um it's really a situation out of control. There's drugs coming in, there's weapons coming in, there's cell phones coming in. Um yeah, you it's it's coming I and mean, where's it coming in from? It's 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 staff and um, and officers, and uh, it,
2: it's a real bad situation all around. But I mean, yeah. it's it's not as if the feds are, are going to be able to flick a switch and magically make all these problems go away, right? No, but uh,
16: they'll 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 uh, implement some changes, I imagine.
2: Mm-hmm.
16: Uh, take some control over the facilities. I mean, they're, 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 there's a settlement in place from years ago when the feds stepped in when Rikers was like overcrowded. Once there were twenty three thousand inmates there, I think there's like five thousand now. But it seems worse now than it did then.
17: Mm. Uh, Richard, were you ever incarcerated at Rikers? I wasn't at Rikers. I was I spent over a year at the MDC in Brooklyn. And I think it's a it's a pretty much a joke that they're going to put the uh, the feds in charge of Rikers because they don't do much of a better job uh, running their own jails in New York. Yeah, The MCC is famous, uh, famously the jail where Jeffrey Epstein was suicided <laughs> and uh, the M- MDC in Brooklyn. Is, is basically was, was railed at by the, uh, the chief judge, uh, Colleen McMahon, uh, uh as being, uh, you know, basically, you know, a little, little better than a third world facility going from, uh, you know, scandal to scandal with a revolving door of, 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 wardens with no real leadership. And when I was at the, at the MDC, you know, it was, it, it was the drugs were everywhere. You had, uh, cell phones, you know, were, were all over the place uh you know, the, the guards were, you know, the, 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 like they said, the guards are where most of the contraband comes in from. So you have the same problems you have in Rikers that you that you do it in the jails, the other jails, the federal jails. The only thing that they do, you know, in, in, the, in the federal jails a little better is they, they tend to lock things down a lot more. You know, they keep the whole place on lockdown for for any reason whatsoever. So that's that's I think what's kept it uh, you know, pretty much. Uh, in decent shape over the past little bit uh, because of the COVID. They use that as a real reason to, ki- to keep things from uh, from moving around. But I can't see the feds doing much, much better than, than New York State corrections is doing.
2: Yeah. Well, interesting. Uh, anything you want to add there, yeah, Andrew, as I a add- former federal prosecutor yourself?
17: Yeah. I want to add
9: that, you know, when you're in lockdown, you get bologna sandwiches. So it's a lot of lot of bologna sandwiches. But I'll tell you this. I have a couple of friends that work at uh, Rikers as corrections officers. It's so one of the most dangerous jobs there is. Mm-hmm. The life expectancy of a corrections officer in the country is fifty nine, compared to what it is for the rest of us, seventy five. So it's very, very dangerous. I think that they could improve the screening process for some corrections officers. Some more mental health um, help for corrections officers. And look, you're going to have a couple bad apples in any profession. Typically, contrabands getting in um, via the hands of very few corrections officers. Uh, so it's a fairly, you know, dangerous job. I can see arguments on both sides.
16: Yeah, I agree. I agree, uh, and I agree with Richard that uh, the the Feds don't do a great job either. But you know, they're a, um, a do, do as I um, I say, not as I do group. The Feds, so they're going to come in gung ho and. Uh, Probably nothing will happen. Yeah.
2: Well, <laughs> last question, as it relates to Rikers, uh, I think John Katzmatidis actually brought this up on the air r- recently. Why do they? Wouldn't it make sense to have some sort of a, a court at Rikers to have expedited arraignments and expedited processes uh, processing of people that are housed at Rikers?
16: Yeah. Well, you, they have uh, they have video there. Oh, they. Have- yeah, videos. so and you could
2: be arraigned via video. For from some writers? reason, the
16: state system, the city system, um, does uh, did that in really a slow rollout. They could do most appearances by video. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only appearances you'd be required to are actually at an initial
2: arraignment. But what about an old fashioned court courthouse? Like, uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be fancy.
16: Problem is, you have people from yeah. f- five different counties there. Uh uh-huh. So you're gonna to have to have five different I judges.
17: I see.
2: I see. Go ahead, Richard. What are
16: you going to yeah, mind? I was
17: about to say that it's a, you have to. It's the county judges that are the Supreme Court judges that that are going to be the issue in a Supreme Court case, obviously. But uh, I think that, and and it, it relates to my case that I, that I have filed. I think that you would need a legislative uh, uh, a bill uh, passed in order to, to to do anything like that, Frank. I think that under COVID, the executive order that was in place uh you know was, was was limited uh and now it's it's not even in place anymore and and, and arraignments uh pleas and sentencing and 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 all jury hearings are fundamental proceedings there so to to not have a a, a defendant present uh, for those proceedings would be a under the current law would be something that's a mode of proceeding error and reversible a reversible error so I think the legislature would have to get involved in this. They have Article 182, which allows for, for video stuff for the non-vital stuff, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, if there's just status conferences and whatnot. But uh, upstate in a lot of the counties, 182 isn't even applicable. So I think this, there would have to be a, a state legislative uh, uh, enactment and signed by the governor in order to remedy the situation.
16: Just on, on Rikers, they actually do have a couple of courts. Uh, it's a, they have a habeas part in there. For, uh, inmates filing habeas corpus because hmm. that's the location. It's always in the place where you're located where you file habeas. And um, I think the Bronx DA, uh, occasionally, uh, they'll open up a little... Because um, the crimes committed on Rikers are even though... by the Bronx, Bronx DA. Bronx DA, even though the island has a... Uh, a, a queen Queens America zip code. That's like one of those strange things. Uh, they I think they had a part there for a while to do uh,
2: crimes committed on Rikers. Gotcha. All right, and... Um, We're talking with uh, Dom Crispino, Andrew McKenna, and Richard Luthman. If you have legal questions, you can call in at 800-848-9222. President Biden announced yesterday that he pardoned three people who he said demonstrated a commitment to rehabilitation, including... An 86-year-old former Secret Service agent, Abraham Bolden Sr., who was the first black Secret Service agent to serve on a presidential detail, the president also commuted the sentences of 75 other people who are currently serving long sentences for nonviolent drug offenses. Um, Richard, let me begin with you. Your take on President Biden's pardons and commutations, did he get these pretty much right as far as you're concerned?
17: Well, he's doing too little too late, I think. Uh, what he did in 94 with the, with the crime bill that he did in 94 it put a lot of people in jail and, and, and disproportionately people of color because of, because of drug weights. Um, the Bolden case is, uh, is something that is uh, very interesting because Bolden's claim the whole time was that he was railroaded uh, because he was black. And I, you know, you, you wouldn't think that, you know, you know, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, that type of stuff, you know, you know, the FBI, but, you know, could have happened. But, you know, nowadays the way the FBI is, you're starting to rethink, you know, what happens uh, with the FBI and the, and the federal, uh, and the federal government. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think that I, of course, I think that, uh, the Bowman, uh, they got the Bowman case, right. But it was, I think it's a long overdue. Uh, but we, I think Biden is, uh, you know, he, he talked a little bit about, uh, well, a lot of these cases are people who are already on home confinement, the commutations. So they've been on home confinement because of, uh, you know, for marijuana cases and, and, and things like that. So it's not really something that is uh, so so huge as usually as it's touted to be, because people aren't really like walking out of prison. They're already, you know, on an ankle monitor at their home. Most of these people. That A-
2: been- Andrew, there has been some criticism of um, of the president for not doing more to clear up the backlog of people who are awaiting clemency for these nonviolent uh, drug offenses. But uh, what was your take on what the president did this week? It's it's
9: he's done too little, and I, I p- applaud the little bit that he's done, but. We, have, as a society, have become so desensitized to these sentences that are absolutely draconian. 15 years, 20 years, life sentences for nonviolent offenses, even for some violent offenses. The sentences are ridiculous. People, we think about 20 years is not a long time. It's an incredibly long time for an offense, especially committed by a young person, Uh and Richard touched on 1994, and, but really the second wave of mass incarceration started in, in the 90s with the crack laws. But really it started early in the 70s and targeted and um, decimated black communities. Um, you, I'm reading now, about the marijuana laws in Washington, D.C. in the 70s and um, just arresting people of color. Uh, unbelievably and sent, you know, destroying communities, whole communities.
2: Uh, Dom, your take on the president's first pardons. (laughs) You may as well have pardoned nobody. Mm
16: -hmm. You know, I mean, Bolden is that's right. But, you know, how many years later is it? I mean, I love this when they all pardon stuff, you know, let's pardon John Peter Zenger, you know, (laughs) go back Brutus, you know, from the uh, the Caesar assassination.
2: (laughs) You know, (laughs) I mean, really, (laughs) Uh, let me get your take on another. Speaking of of presidents, another case involving uh, a president that's uh, Donald Trump. He's been found in civil contempt of court, and they're supposed to start fining him $10,000 a day starting today, apparently because he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't comply with the Attorney General Letitia James's uh, subpoena. Uh, Dom, did uh, President Trump do the right thing here by ignoring Tish James's subpoena as a legal strategy? Where do you see this going?
16: Well, uh, if you read the accounts of what's gone on, uh, I think the judge got it wrong. Um, he shouldn't have fined the president. No, because uh, basically the, the judge was saying that as – as um, there should have been a sworn affidavit that they searched these records and, and these places where these documents allegedly are, and nothing was found. No sworn statement was put in. I think the attorney put in an affirmation. And the attorney has no personal knowledge, so the affirmation is really meaningless. So the judge said, well, I need an affirmation. I need an affidavit from somebody with knowledge that – These things were searched and nothing was found there, and he suspects that because that wasn't done, the search wasn't done or they're not – they're playing coy
2: with the documents. So uh, just help me out here. So Tish James issued a subpoena for certain documents. The Trump team says we don't have any of those documents. That's correct. And we looked and we definitely don't have any. Right. And I I, I think that they were they were um,
16: pegging the documents in certain places. The file cabinets outside Donald Trump's office and that kind
2: of thing. I, I mean, where does that come from? Probably came from Michael Cohen. But who knows if those things those to <laughs> so them, wouldn't it be a mistake for them not to simply submit an affidavit saying we looked hard in all these places and can't find anything? Yeah, it looks suspicious uh,
16: that that's why it's suspicious if, if they had sworn to that. Well, the judge would have. Well, they say they don't have it. I mean, if they find out later they have it, there'll be consequences.
9: Right, and the judge yeah. said that there was not enough evidence that Trump had conducted a thorough search. Right. So it's really essentially
16: or anybody
2: proving search. that's he, right.
16: Maybe even he would have even accepted if the attorney went there and said, "I looked." And found nothing.
2: So, I mean, it sounds like both of you are saying that Trump may not have handled this the proper way. And his legal team may not have handled this the proper way. They should have, in order to avoid uh, being held in contempt, they should have submitted an affidavit here. Yeah. Or at
9: least shown that a a sufficient search was done to satisfy the the court. But I don't think that ever would have satisfied the court.
17: Uh,
2: Richard uh, Luthman, what do you think?
17: I think Trump's lawyers are screwing up, up and down. Uh, mm. Not just uh, me, but I think Alan Dershowitz, Professor Dershowitz said the first thing they should have done is walked in and and asked for Letitia James to, to be recused, to be disqualified from the case because she ran politically on we're going to get Trump. And uh, there's an appearance of impropriety when you make a campaign promise that you're going to get somebody as a prosecutor, as a district attorney. I don't even think it should be at this, uh, this should even be an issue, right? I think we should be arguing about whether the attorney general's office should be disqualified uh, in this case. And that should be the issue. But they could be I really,
9: impartial, basically, right?
17: Yeah, I don't think they could be impartial. I think that the standard is an appearance of impropriety and the appearance of impropriety is, is so great when someone says, we're going to get Trump as as one of their campaign promises. It's almost like the KGB. Find me the man and I'll find you the crime. Mm, mm.
9: But if you look at all district attorneys or AGs or any elected law enforcement officer, as they get closer to Election Day, they, um, you know, make more demands to be tough on crime. And this is a trend that we've seen since the beginning of, of the republic, essentially. And. Um, even judges, the sentences that they hand down, elected judges, that is, the sentences they hand down uh, spike up closer to election day so that they can prove that they're tough on crime. District attorneys, the same thing, Uh, not AUSAs on the federal side because they're they're appointed. appointed. Right, right. Right. Makes sense. So the argument really is uh, do away with uh,
2: elected elected prosecutors. Is that what you think we should do? You think we should have no elected prosecutors? Absolutely. Well, Richard, what do you think?
17: I think there would be it would be much better. I, I think that uh, meaning, meaning I think it that would be a better system
2: different. not to have elected prosecutors, kind of like New Jersey does.
17: Yeah, I think it would, would help out. I think the politics the, taking the politics out can only help. I think that this case is very different from every other district attorney or, or a prosecutor race that's elected because they say, yeah, we're going to be tough on crime. We're going to be tough on on this area or that area on burglaries, on drugs, on this, on that. This this case, Letitia James says I'm going after this specific person.
2: Right, He's tough on Donald.
16: And Trump. That's,
17: that's where <laughs> yeah. it crosses the line. This, this person's really.
9: Uh, uh, Sorry,
2: yeah, uh, Dom. Uh, you know, I know, if memory serves, you once announced that you were running for district attorney in Manhattan. Uh, the Manhattan DA's office responded by indicting you. Um, do you agree with these guys that we'd be better off without elected prosecutors? Frank, it's unanimous. Really?
16: Yes. Uh, I, I think elected prosecutors is a recipe for disaster. See,
2: I, I like elections, and again, I'm, I, well, you I, love elections, I, I'm, I'm the only person here not, you know, never to have been uh, under indictment, but. I, um, I don't, I think it's co- totally inappropriate to do what Tish James did and say that, uh, oh, I'm going to go after this person. I'm going to investigate them and then to actually go after them. That to me is an egregious conflict of interest, which is why I agree with you guys that the Trump team should have made a motion to recuse. But, um, you know, I've seen appointed prosecutors that can be just as out of control as as elected prosecutors, I think what well, we what Mr. we need.
17: Frank, you have to re- remember. I don't think there's a there's a DA around that doesn't in New York that doesn't have a a, a, a case out there that that becomes questionable. You look at uh, at Joe Hines in Brooklyn and John Kennedy O'Hara. That yeah. was uh, you know that guy w- went through ten years of hell. Yeah, uh, it, was just, it was a political vendetta. There's a lot of times when these 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 elected political people. That, that become district attorneys, they were political hacks before, and they remain to a certain extent a political hack to their, their core. And they they use their their power as a district attorney to do political things, politically motivated prosecutions. It's a uh, it's a defense uh, when if if you're going to bring it up, a politically motivated prosecution. But in the in the first instance, it's very hard to prove. That's why it took O'Hara ten years uh, to clear his name. It's it's a really tough thing.
9: And yeah. prosecutors, whether it's state or federal, really have unfettered discretion. There's no check on their power. The only check is a judge and that's you know, very narrowly with the constitutional ruling or something to that effect. But really, there's unfettered discretion among prosecutors.
2: Uh, we're to continue, and we'll take your calls in a minute at 800-848-9222. When we come back, in Florida, you remember that uh, young man that murdered 17 people at a Parkland high school? Well, th- his death penalty trial has not even begun. We'll find out why when we talk with Dom Crispino, Richard Luthman, and Andrew McKenna straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC.
2: This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno joined by three men who know the law very well, both sides of it, arguing it and being on the receiving end of its uh, of its justice. Uh Dom Crispino is here, uh, Andrew McKenna is here and Richard Luthman is here. Uh very quickly I want to get your gentleman's take on this. Uh we all remember Nicholas Cruz, the the shooter at the at Douglas High School in uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. The judge presiding over that death penalty sentencing evidently reversed course yesterday, deciding to start over with jury selection, something that she said two days earlier would happen at the prosecution's request. Quote, I was going to grant the state's motion without prejudice, but at this time I'm going to dismiss the state's motion as The prosecution requested starting the process over because the judge had excused 11 prospective jurors who said they could not follow the law before attorneys for both sides got to question them. The assistant state attorney, Carolyn McCann, said that a mistake was made calling the situation a miscommunication and filed a motion asking the judge to strike the jury panels. Quote, there's too many issues at this point. It's better to just start fresh. Uh, Richard, I believe you're in the Sunshine State, so I'll begin with you.
17: Well, this is a, a capital case. So I think the judge did the right thing here because... Uh, there's the, the most scrutiny uh, on, on capital cases. Now the the, the point we're at is that there's no question as to guilt. He he's pled guilty. The question here is a case of life and death, and it's a sentencing. So so the the lawyers for Nicholas Cruz are trying to make the case uh, that he should basically serve life in prison, and that, that's really what's on the table. It's either going to be a death penalty or a life in prison. And to sustain a death penalty uh, decision by by the jury, there if there's any type of irregularity, there's any type of of, of error at all, it it's uh, it, it could be fatal. So I think it's the right thing to start over and try to get this right, rather than have to wait a couple of years and, and get sent back down for for a new for a resentencing. Don, what do you think?
16: Yeah, it's a real blunder by the judge. I mean, just eleven people say, "Hey, we can't be fair," and you say, "Okay, you can go." Right. I mean, you always turn them over to to the attorneys, and and then they'll probe, right, to see if they're really saying that, if they really believe that, and. You know, take them them at their word. Well, maybe not.
2: Andrew McKenna, any thoughts on this one?
9: My only thought is that they um, certainly had to fill out questionnaires prior to serving or being potential uh, jurors. And so there could have been something favorable uh, to the defendant in those questionnaires. So the lawyer should have been able to probe it. And uh, Richard's absolutely right. It's a death penalty case. It's the ultimate... um, possible sentence and it has to be completely right so start from scratch
2: alfredo is in newark hello alfredo you have a question
10: good morning guys uh here in new jersey i saw um, a couple of times signs saying that uh, marijuana charges are going to be a sponge uh, my
2: question is in new jersey oh. not in new jersey right
10: in New years yeah I live in Newark uh-huh. so my question my question is that uh, for uh, if uh, prostitution uh, will be legal uh, I have charges I have a solicit prostitution so they the same with the same logic my charge will be response
2: to well, I guess it would depend on what the actual legislation says. I mean, right, gentlemen, I mean, so Alfredo's asking, I guess he's had prior charges for a prostitution arrest. if they legalize uh, prostitution, do those charges automatically get expunged? No, no, no they, so it, no. it it would depend on what the legislation would say. Alfredo. sorry Thank All right, you Thank you thank you. Uh, my friend uh, Dr. Mason is out on Long Island. Hello, Dr. Mason.
15: Frank, excellent show, and your guests are very intelligent, and that's why I wanted to call in. But I must say first, your son is the cutest in that tipped down <laughs> the million you. dollar bill Thank I swear to God, yeah. All right, so why I called was I find you guys very intelligent, and I find um, I've been listening. And I don't know if you're all from New York. Tom, you're from New York, correct? Yes, I am. And you were disbarred in New York. Yes. Correct? Yeah, I believe yes. all three of these gentlemen
16: are
2: v- vehemently disbarred, disbarred in New York. With with an exclamation oh. point at the end. Yeah. <laughs>
15: <laughs> no 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 listen listen what, you know the thing I I I know a lot about this because one of my friends he passed away was an appellate judge in um he was like a lot older than me he was in the 90s like a mentor um William Thompson on the second department and he was very tough so I would because I was on a charity with him with uh, judges in bracket and um, uh, judges of lawyers against breast cancer and I um a couple of my friends are physicians. anyway long story short Why don't you reapply for your license? Because a disbarment in New York is really not a disbarment. It's only a seven-year suspension.
2: Yeah. And, I, I guess Andrew is in the best position to uh, to answer that, because I know Dom and Richard are still at various stages and fighting their own legal cases. But, Andrew, you're you've been out of prison for a while now. Uh, have you looked at re uh, re rea- reapplying for your law license?
9: I have looked. I'm a little bit different because I was never actually admitted in New York. I was admitted in Washington, D.C. and Georgia. So I'm actually and federally I guess, and federally. Right. Yeah. At, right. And so. I'm actually going to apply to be admitted in New York. Uphill battle, and believe it or not, I actually have to take a bar exam in July. Uh, So, is that your plan? You're going to do that? That, That's my plan.
2: All right, will be my first
9: first hurdle. I mean, people have done you know 14, 15 years for attempted murder and they're you know rehabilitated and they're you know admitted to practice and doing well. Well,
2: if they don't admit you, you, all you know have to do is attempt to kill somebody (laughs) and then try again. (laughs) All you have to show... is that you're a person of
16: good moral conscience at this time. Then then we're
2: all out of luck. Uh, (laughs) Dr. Mason, thank you. I'll be in touch. Thank you. Thanks, Frank. Appreciate it. Take care. Uh, Let me, um, uh, while we're talking about death penalty cases, there's two two more cases that I want to bring to your attention before we run out of time. Fascinating case out of Texas. This was the front page of the New York Daily News on Sunday. Um, This woman who was slated to be executed last week, Melissa Lucio, I I think the, the high criminal court in Texas made the right decision on Monday by ordering a halt to this execution. This is a mother of 14, mother of 14. Hispanic woman convicted of killing her two-year-old child more than a decade ago in a case that has now drawn bipartisan outrage. The entire time, Melissa Lucio has maintained her innocence, and the calls for leniency have become widespread in Texas, which is rare when it comes to death penalty cases in uh, in Texas, but Democratic state legislators, Republican state legislators, and now the uh, the criminal court of, of appeals in Texas is pressing the pause button on her execution. What's the story here, Dom? Well, the story is that there
16: probably was not a crime committed and that there were uh, questionable interrogation techniques used and that the, the, the child died from a fall. And it was not her fault. And the police took advantage of her and got her to say, I guess I did it. And that this is a problem. This is not an isolated case. There, there was the case of Natasha Tiger in New York, who was the nurse, who, who gave a, her 10-year-old uh, disabled charge a, uh, a bath, and he um, uh, his skin turned red, and uh, they said that she tried to scald him, and uh, she ended up taking a plea, and then it comes out later in a civil suit that her parents brought, that the kid had a condition that brought that out. Wow. And then they won't vacate her plea. Um she, yeah, she took the plea because four months in jail is better than, like, seven. Sure, yeah, um, seven years. Is a, there's, a, yeah. there's a case of Andrew Kowalski in Duchess, who no, I know it's not a famous case. I know his situation, the same thing. There's a case of the woman in Australia with the four kids who died over a period of time. Um, I, I, I don't recall her name right now, but um, there's all these medical experts saying that, yeah, four children may have died young in her charge, but... There's a genetic defect in the family. Mm. So now they're trying to get her pardoned because she's gone through all her, all her steps.
2: So you think she may may end up getting her whole conviction vacated potentially? It sounds like it should happen. Yeah, I mean, uh, you talk about uh, I mean being very close to being killed last week and now possibly because of the attention this case is getting, being close to being let go out of prison. Andrew, you, uh, any thoughts on this one?
9: Well, in this case, there wasn't actually a false confession, as Don pointed out. Um, correctly, she made a statement that sh- she may have been responsible for the death. But what people don't understand is they can never no one can ever understand. Well, if you have if you haven't committed a crime, how could you say that you committed a crime? Innocence Project begun by Barry Shack and um, continued on. They found that out of their exonerations, 25 percent of the cases, there were false confessions that the police and federal agents do do. Expert jobs at interrogations. They isolate. They put pressure on. They get somebody to question their own truth. So they actually question people who start to question their own memory. And there's various types of uh, false confessions. You have persuaded false confessions. You have um, compliant false confessions. You're sitting in a room for hours and hours, and the police are essentially allowed to lie to you up to a point, up to a point until – it crosses over in, to the point where your confession's involuntary, and we can kind of get into the weeds with that. It's so common, Frank, that somebody's put under so much pressure, and they go through a psychological cognitive dissonance where they actually tell on themselves, knowing oftentimes that they didn't do it, and sometimes believing, coming to believe that they did do it.
16: And in her case, she was a victim uh, of, of of abuse over many years, from husbands and boyfriends, and uh, she was particularly susceptible, and the judge in the case would not let that kind of evidence in, which would which would show why she did certain things during the interrogation, said certain things, and gave in at a certain point.
2: Uh, Richard, any, uh, any dissenting view on this case, or the false confession issue generally?
17: No, I, I think that uh, one of the big issues here uh, is that she's, uh, asserted her actual innocence in this case. Uh, and that, uh, there's, there was false testimony and evidence that w- was hidden at the trial. And, and the issue here becomes prosecutorial misconduct. There's a lot of prosecutorial mi- uh, misconduct that goes on in cases. And, and it looks like that this was a case where there was prosecutor- uh, prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, the, the question is, does it really ever get punished? And, and the answer is no. Uh, prosecutors you know uh, uh, are in a position where they can you know do some really shady stuff with with almost uh, with impunity with with no real uh, uh, consequences. Well, well. speaking uh, of
2: that, I want to make sure we touch upon this last case. I spoke about this on the radio the other day, and people weighed in with uh, with varying views. It's the story of Daryl Howard, who spent 24 years in prison for a double murder he didn't convi- uh, commit. His conviction was vacated uh, in 2016 after a judge found both police and prosecutorial misconduct. So last year, a federal jury agreed that the lead detective, Daryl Dowdy, had fabricated evidence and the jury awarded this fella Daryl Howard six million dollars yet now the city of Durham in North Carolina is refusing to pay him. How do they get away with this?
17: Anybody that wants to (laughs) answer that (laughs) is welcome. It's a stumper, Frank. (laughs)
16: Right. Are
17: they
9: are they appealing the, the 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 award?
17: The argument the argument is this. They're saying that by virtue of the fact that the there was police misconduct uh and there was uh, you know falsification of evidence planting of evidence that they don't have to cover the 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 uh the police officer and this is a tactic that's been used by municipalities before where they basically tell the the officer uh they we're not covering you number one and number two just just uh uh file for bankruptcy and this guy can't can't get anything so it's a real problem because this they spent about 4 million dollars you know, prosecuting this guy and, and, and defending defending the, the verdict. And they're still, you know, uh, indignant about the fact that that they've done anything wrong. Uh, the prosecutors. So Richard, let, me, any-
9: let me ask you a question. Is it because are they saying that he was acting outside the scope of his duties when he um, falsified the evidence? Is that the, their argument?
17: Yeah, the, the the city's refusing to indemnify him for acting okay. uh, without, yeah. outside the scope of his employment.
16: Because yes. in federal court, you you, you can't sue a state. You can you can sue an individual for violation of civil rights, but you can only sue the municipality, I believe, under the respondeat superior um, theory. And yes. then that's that's where they're trying to di- disengage this thing and say, well, it's you know, it's his problem. Because he was acting outside the scope of what we wanted him to do.
2: All right, gentlemen, the hour has flown by. Uh, Dom, is that debate on May second open to the public? Can anyone go, or is it? It is, to- but I think it might be uh, sold out.
16: And- All right,
17: okay. Well, you we have my, to. My debate on start. May sixth before the Supreme Court in Richmond County is open to the public. Are you, are <laughs> you coming up uh, for that?
2: Uh, back uh, back to uh, New York State, Richard? or Are you doing that remotely? Oh no,
17: I'm going to be. I'm going to probably be virtual that day. I can't leave, but on the federal. Uh, uh,
2: keep, keep us posted on that. And, uh, Andrew, you'll have to keep us posted with how your studying for the bar exam goes. Absolutely. Thank you all. Uh, coming up next hour, we got a lot to get to. We'll talk Atlantic City and death uh, not at the same time. A lot to get to. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, uh, keep asking questions.
7: For an appointment or newbridgehealth.org.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
2: Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano i uh very fortunate that um, both of my parents are alive. Their parents are not. All four of my grandparents are, are dead. Uh, all eight of my great-grandparents are passed away. And they all have one thing in common. All of them. All four of my grandparents, all eight of my great-grandparents were all buried and not cremated. Now, growing up, that's, I guess, maybe because that was my own family tradition, my own family history. In fact, many of them are actually in the same cemetery. At, uh, You know, I don't want to get into which cemetery. I don't need you defacing their tombstones. I'll put that aside for a second. Um, that was kind of, I don't know, that was a tradition in our family. But I saw this fascinating article a couple of days ago, which shows that there has been a stunning rise of cremation. And the Washington Post writing about this says this could reveal America's changing idea of death. And it is now, if you can believe it, more popular than a traditional casket funeral. And it's twice, cremation this is what we're talking about here, twice as common as it was. Two decades ago. And the Washington Post asks the question that I'm going to ask you to answer at 800-848-WABC. What does that say about us? Why do you think cremation is now more popular than traditional casket burial? And what does that say about us and how we look at death as a society? 800-848-9222. At the height of the pandemic, Greenwood's crematory burned constantly in Brooklyn, uh, Greenwood Cemetery. I made the reference to Greenwood when we were talking with uh, Dr. Sky earlier. Their crematory burned constantly, 16 to 18 hours a day. A wall recently collapsed. Maintenance costs spiked. Last year, 4,500 bodies entered the five chambers. That is a 35% increase over 2019. So many ashes to ashes, so much dust to dust. Cremation is now America's leading form of final disposition, as the funeral industry calls it, a preference that shows no signs of abating. In 2020, 56% of Americans who died were cremated, more than double the figure of 27% two decades earlier. That's according to the Cremation Association of North America. By 2040, if these trends continue, listen to this. Four out of five Americans are projected to choose cremation over casket burial. That's according to both the National Funeral Directors Association and the Cremation Association of North America. So this seismic shift, and I think that's the only way you can look at it, represents huge revenue losses for the funeral industry. Because obviously it's a lot less expensive to go through a cremation than it is to do even a simple funeral service. It is leading innovators... To create a growing number of green alternatives and other choices that depart from traditional casket funerals, rapidly shifting views about disposing with bodies have also led to changes in how we memorialize loved ones and reflect on increasingly secular, transient, and some argue, a deathphobic nation. That is the words not of my of mine, but uh, Karen Heller writing an opinion piece um, in the Washington Post. Well, and maybe it's not an opinion piece. It's in the lifestyle section. It's not an opinion piece. So there's a quote here from one of these officials, uh, Richard Moylan, who uh, works at Greenwood Cemetery. Some people want it over and done with. You wonder if they'll come to regret that later. With cremation of fa- With cremation families, a lot of them – don't want to know what we do or how we do it or don't care to know what you can do with a cremated body. This generation just doesn't want to do the 3-day long funeral home thing. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? I'll be honest and you know this is one of the few things that Curtis says about me that is true. Um I actually like wakes. I actually like going to wakes. I go to a lot of wakes, that is true. And now, part of that is because I have a broad social network and because my friends have always tended to be much older than 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 I am. So, obviously not only when they pass away am I going to go to the wake, but when they have uh, husbands, wives, brothers, uncles, uh not uncles, but parents that pass away, I go to the I go to the wakes. And the reason I like going to wakes is because I find and this is why i generally try to tell people what they mean to me while they're alive but i find it's such a great way to reflect upon a person's life i love looking at the photo arrays i love talking to family and friends and reminiscing about people but evidently i'm out of the i'm out of fashion because according to this gentleman at greenwood cemetery in brooklyn he's saying this generation doesn't want to do the 3-day funeral thing now um in my own case, uh, assuming I'm in a similar financial position to the one I'm in now, which is right in that meaty part of the curve when it comes to the middle class, my plan I would like to if I can afford a, a, a burial plot, in fact I was just talking about this with my wife a week or two ago, would be to be buried, uh would be to be buried in a cemetery, right? Uh maybe a mausoleum, you know, or, or something like that. But um After I donate all my organs, if if uh, I become super wealthy, I get to Elon Musk or even John Katsimatidis level of wealth, then and people think I'm joking when I talk about this, but we're going to do a future show on this, maybe then I'd like to be cryogenically frozen and then brought back many generations later whenever they can find a cure for whatever killed me. But Unless I'm become super wealthy, I'm not going to burden my family with my vanity project of my pie-in-the-sky dream of having my head frozen. I, you know, I'm going to be buried. I like the idea of having a place where people can visit, having something clever written on the tombstone. I mean, I get my friend Dennis, He his father was cremated, and then they buried the ashes, and so he has a tombstone, but there's no b- body in there. It's just ashes, which I thought was a b- bizarre thing. It was the first that I've heard of this. But Thomas Lynch, a Michigan poet and funeral director of 50 years, 50 years. I think that's almost as long as my, our friend Vinny Rakuglia. He said this, the stunning increase in cremation is the single greatest change In our funeral practices, in our generation, or I'd venture to say in the last couple of centuries, people want the body disappeared pretty much. I think it reminds us of what we lost. In the United States, Thomas Lynch notes, this is the first generation of our species that tries to deal with death without dealing with the dead. What do you make of that? 800-848-WABC. I, I find that a little sad, I have to tell you. What do you think? Other countries have been quicker to embrace the practice, like Japan, where with a rate of almost 100%, uh, in part because there's no place to bury anyone over there. They have high density and there's no no burial plot, so what do they do? They burn them. Cremation is central to Hindu. And Buddhist funeral practices, it releases the soul from the body. But Judaism, Catholicism, and Islam, the three major gods of Abraham, they've resisted it because of their views about the sanctity of body and spirit and death. Though the United, the United States' first crematory opened in 1876 in Pennsylvania... Americans were slow to accept this. They were just queasy about it, and it took a century or more to evolve. The rising cremation rate is upending truly conventional ideas of how death and commemoration work. That's according to Professor David Charles Sloan, author of Is the Cemetery Dead? That's a book. It actually sounds pretty interesting. I'm going to put him on a list of uh, people that maybe we'll have on on a future show. Um, He grew up. In a cemetery, his father was a cemetery superintendent in Syracuse. Traditional burials often use valuable space in high density areas. You know, it's funny. I watched the television show Billions and there's this one episode of Billions where one of the wealthy characters on that show uh, spends a boatload of money to buy the last burial plot in Manhattan it's very difficult to get buried in Manhattan now. In fact, I don't think you can get buried in Manhattan just because there's no space. Even Ed Koch, and he tried to do this. He put in plans to do this 25, 30 years ago. Ed Koch had a difficult time getting buried in Manhattan. Now, he was able to uh, you know, square it. I think he got buried at the sister parish to Trinity Church. It's not the Trinity Church downtown, but it's their sister parish that's a little further uptown. 800 wabc What do you think about this trend? Is it simply a function of no more space? Is it what some of these other people are saying? That folks don't want to deal with the three-day mourning process? Is it a function of expense? What is the fact that cremation now exceeds traditional burial in our country? What does that say for us as a country? 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Chris in Buffalo. Hello, Chris.
5: Hey, buddy. How you doing,
2: Frank? I'm hanging in there. Thank you. Still alive. Uncremated.
5: Yeah, I me. Mean, yeah, I'm, it snowed over here yesterday. Remember I called in before. I got a hand from you. Thank you for that.
2: Oh, good. Anyway, I'm glad yeah, you got I'm it. Like, Thank yeah. you. You're welcome. Where it my pride. take on
5: the burial is, is, is they, these kids today or these 20- uh, and 30-year-olds have no Christian value, you know. I mean, they, they've gotten away. They don't go to church. And uh, my, my take on it is, no, we absolutely shouldn't burn our bodies. That's a no-no, you know. and uh, And the cost is, you know, a quarter of the cost to have the funeral and all that. Well, I think that's part of
2: it. I I think you're exactly right, and I think that's what some of these experts are saying. And what you're saying, it's not just Christianity that people have turned away from. It's fewer people than ever that are patronizing any organized religion. Because I mentioned Judaism and Islam, they take a dim view of cremation as well. Now, um, traditional burials often use this valuable space in high-density areas and may involve embalming chemicals. So... Some people say it's greener to go the cremation route. But critics of cremation counter that, no, it's not greener. You're dependent on fossil fuels and it, that emit greenhouse gases. They argue that cremation can also have a desensitizing effect on families. They say it can be too easy. For some, this is the Washington Post phraseology, not mine, It's drive-through death. For others, cremation offers the opportunity to control and personalize life's final ritual. For instance, very controversial at Disney. They prohibited the practice, but people are still doing it, where you scatter your ashes at a Disney theme park or at a beach or wherever else. So it is interesting. 800-848-9222. John's in Garden City. Hello, John.
6: Hey, Frank. I come to the conclusion personally, I just... Don't feel as, I don't know, burden people with a, with, a, with a burial plot. Who's going to come visit me after a certain amount of time? Both my parents go, and I hardly even see them. And when I go there, all I just feel the pain of when they died. I want to have the memory of who they are in my heart. It's, I'm done with that. And the other thing I sort of, this, this kind of really changed my opinion. And I'm a Christian, mind you. I saw this video on YouTube, a bandit, uh, I think in the chapel uh, where they have a crypt, a bandit. And it's been vandalized. And I'm just thinking, where are the families of these people? Are actually, people vandalized, pulling the, the, uh, the coffins out of the uh, the crypts and stuff. It's wow. horrendous. And it's terrible. It's very heartbreaking to see that. It's just, that, you, know, at, you know, 30, 40, 100 years from now, what's going to happen to my, 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 my casket, my parents' casket? Well, you know, it's, it's,
2: it's a good point, John. You know, in the cemetery, in the um, church that my wife and I go to, there's a cemetery there. And some of the... Graves are from the 1700s, the 1800s, the 1850s, the early 1900s. And uh, most of these people that are buried there, I guarantee you, they have no relatives, no family. They don't know a single person on this earth that's alive. So I, I guess, I guess, the argument can be made: is that the most? Um, is that is that the best use of that space? Number one, and um, what purpose does it serve if they're going to be forgotten about in 40, 50 years to have that uh, that burial plot? But you're saying that even visiting the cemetery, it just makes Makes you sad,
6: Yeah, big time. Yeah. And I think it's, I've come to the conclusion it's an antiquated system. I know I'm a Christian. I can afford any kind of funeral I want, but it's just a question. Of, I'm going to be gone. Who's going to come visit me? I, I'll be just obscure, like like you just said, 50, 60 years. Who's going to know who I am anymore? Yeah, point?
2: well, but I, hey, John, I, what a, different strokes for different folks. I'm just interested in folks' take on this as a sociological and a societal, societal trend. Why is this happening? Why the change? Uh, it seems to be some people are, again, this is a pretty comprehensive view in this Washington Post piece. In fact, I'm going to share it on Facebook. If you want to read it, uh, go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Some people are saying what the previous caller said, Chris in Buffalo, that it's a reflection of less people are going to church uh, or, or adhering to religions that call for this kind of thing, traditional burial. Other people are saying it's a matter of space. Other people are saying, like what uh, John just said, that, you know, who wants to be sad all the time? You want to remember your loved one as they lived, not the pain of loss. What do you think? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Paul is in New Jersey. Hello, Paul.
11: Hey, how you doing, Frank? Um, so, yeah, I'm actually Greek Orthodox. Um, so... So, it's so nasty to all the Greeks out there and everybody who just celebrated Orthodox Easter. Likewise. Um, and uh, the point is uh, I don't believe in cremation. I think everybody should do what's, uh, you know, what's right for them. But uh, me personally, and, you know, this goes to my religion, uh, it's clear teaching that, uh, you know, we're going to be resurrected one day as Christians and our bones and all that um, should, you know, I don't want to say the Bible says to remain intact, per se, but the church teaches, you know, you should be buried in the ground. Some people are terrified of it. Some people are terrified of being cremated. My father passed away about two years ago. Uh, He didn't want to be cremated. So, you know, we buried him. But it is very expensive.
2: Yeah, well, it certainly is, uh, Paul. And uh, sorry about your your dad's passing. I um, appreciate the perspective. They say... That twenty to forty percent of cremated remains are interred in a cemetery. See, I had no idea that it was that high. I had no idea. My my friend Dennis's father. That was the first time I had heard of that. Um, You know, placed in a storage area for urns, a columbarium, or placed in the ground. Sixty to eighty percent are buried in another location, scattered somewhere, uh, like uh, Walt Disney World, as I mentioned. I was talking with. I don't know. I don't know if I can say this. I and mean, I'm sorry if I'm going to get in trouble. But I was talking with our president, uh, Chad Lopez. His brother passed away a few years ago, and they keep his ashes in the house. They keep the ashes in the house, and I think my stepmother did that with her father for a time. I think ultimately they scattered them because I don't think they're in their house anymore. But some people keep him in a mantle. Some people uh, keep him in a closet. Some families bypass this ritual all the time, um, you know, entirely, saying goodbye to the body at the crematory, holding a funeral or establishing a permanent memorial. So I don't know. Uh, they, you know, according to the pro cremation advocates like the head of the cremation association, Barbara Chemist, she said there's this assumption that the funeral director is the only person who can provide a meaningful death ritual. Her family chose to travel to Colorado and scatter her brother's remains in a national park. A celebration that still resonates almost three decades later. The cremation rate, this is her words, is 100% being driven by the general public. It's all about what grieving families want. They're creating their own traditions and their own experiences. So what do you think? 800 848 Eric's in Manhattan.
15: Hello, Eric. Hey Frank, you covered a lot there. With the, I think if it's a big societal trend, it's probably you know, it's a little it is greener. You know, I've heard that every disease, every disease known to man is still alive in the cemetery. You know, and uh, but you can still have the funeral and all the pomp and circumstance with ashes. You know, and you mentioned the family can keep the ashes. Um, I uh, remember Roz from Night Court. There was a joke. She goes, um. I'm not going to get cremated. You know, what, what if your kidney or your liver is like the key to heaven? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, I mean, there's so many different reasons. But, yeah, it's, it's environmental. And also, people realize it's just a husk. You know, you're, you're not – you're moving on to another stage of life. It's not really death, you know. Well, that's my and view. The family can right. The wake is for the family mostly, you know, and who's who lo- who's left behind. So and it doesn't have to mean a lack of religion. Yeah. No, you know? agreed.
2: Agreed, Eric. Thank yeah. you. No, that's exactly my view. My um, – you know, my wife is one of nine, and uh, – her mother's very religious uh that she they're all they grew up evangelical christian they have various spiritual traditions now but um a couple of years ago a bunch of my wife's siblings a bunch of my siblings-in-law were going to visit her father who passed away and um my uh, brother-in-law James said to my sister-in-law Sharon said are you going to go to that?" Are you going to go visit your father in the cemetery? And she said, no, he's not there. You know, I I have no, it it doesn't convey any special ability to talk to him in a cemetery than it would in um, any other form. And that's generally my view. I generally don't visit my relatives in cemeteries or my friends uh, in cemeteries and I, I guess just because that's my view. I mean, the one thing to be said for a cemetery visit, I guess maybe it does focus your mind a little bit more on um, thinking about that person and connecting with that person and praying for that person. But um, I've never been a big cemetery visitor, but maybe I should go more. I don't know. Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick.
12: Good morning, Frank. Morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, about the burial, uh, I think
13: expense. From people I've talked to, it's expense. My, my mother died twenty years ago, and it cost fifteen thousand dollars. That's twenty years ago. I can't imagine what it would cost now. Whereas a cremation is approximately two thousand dollars. You know, and depending oh, on no, the earn you get all that, you know. Now, uh, your caller did say, and it's, it's right. It, you know, you don't want to go there. You don't want to see them. I, I agree. Uh, the only reason I got a plot was because when my mother died, I bought a double plot. Now. That everyone else in my family has died 20 years later, kind of like a moot point. There's going to be nobody to come to see me. You know, I mean, I, now that you know, I bought it already, but I don't know, maybe I would consider cremation, except for the Catholic thing, and it kind of like it guilts me. You know, I'm still recovering from that. But, what? uh,
2: well, uh, uh, well, no, I'll I'll visit you, Rick. Now that I'm going to try and visit more uh, more cemeteries, uh, if, I, uh, if I if if you if I, if you do predecease me, I'll visit you. Um, so you just give your information to Philippe of where I could find that uh, plot. Six decades ago, the U.S. cremation rate was less than five percent. Imagine that. That's nothing in the grand scheme of things. Sixty years ago. It was less than five percent. Now there are more people getting cremated than buried. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Dina is in Westchester. Hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, am I on? Yes, Dina. Go ahead. Be heard. Okay.
10: Okay. Uh, if uh, I am Eastern Orthodox, and we were brought up in the church, Sora. Uh, and uh, if you read the Bible, it it says uh, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We have to—God created us, so we have to turn into dust. He didn't say turn to ashes. So that's why we don't believe in that.
2: Well, yeah, and, and I guess—and what a lot of folks are saying, and what this article is saying, and thanks for the call, Dina, and I hope you had a nice Easter— um, what a lot of folks are saying—it's the departure away from religion as a country, which is in part responsible for the uptick in cremation. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Isabel is in Waretown. Hello, Isabel.
10: Hi. Good morning. Morning. Um, I recent my I recently lost my husband, and we Sorry. had every we. Thank you. Um, we. I didn't want to drag it out for three days. We had our funeral service in the morning from nine to eleven thirty. We had a mass at twelve o'clock at a, at our church, and we went right to the cemetery. And it was it was great. It was all in one day, and we didn't drag it out for three days. And I think I never considered um, burying, uh, cremating him. Uh,
2: so why um, why didn't you ever consider cremation?
10: I just. I don't know. I'm, I'm Catholic. We were brought up mm-hmm. not not to do that, you know, when I was younger, yeah. And um, I just, I, I just couldn't do it.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, no, that's great, and and I think that's wonderful, Isabel. And it's great that you uh, that you uh, keep his memory alive like that. Thank you. Um, so, what we're hearing, I think, are the two backed up by the callers, is what the experts are saying. Is that two of the driving or maybe three, the three big driving factors towards the uptick in cremation is number one, America becoming increasingly secular. We've talked about this before. Last year, the number of people belonging to a a house of worship or a church dropped below 50 percent for the first time ever. Two is the cost and the convenience of cremation. Comparisons are challenging uh, because there are so many different options, but the median price of a funeral with burial and viewing is $7,800. The median cost of cremation, $2,500. So a lot of people take issue with the cost. And then three is uh, what um, I think John Garden City said. It's people don't want to deal with the grief of visiting a tombstone all the time. So, I mean, does that say something about society, that we're dealing with death differently than we have throughout the rest of history? 800 uh, 848 Let me say hello to Rick in Freeport. Hello, Rick.
10: Good evening, Frank. I'm 93, Frank. I'm an Episcopalian. Wonderful. God bless you. My, wa- my wife passed away three years ago after sixty nine years of marriage.
2: Oh, I'm sorry.
10: Oh, it was it was a good life. I had a good life. I met her when she was seventeen, my God, that's a long time ago. And we agreed on formation. I have her ashes in a vase sitting in my living room. Every night at four thirty I light a tea candle and I sort of remember the good times we had. And I also get fresh flowers every Wednesday. I get a a, a, a bouquet of fresh flowers from a uh, ladle, and 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 I don't have to go and travel to a cemetery. That always was a, a sort of a burden for the two of us. We were burdened with visiting my mother's uh, grave and visiting a grave, and they were in different locations. And also, this is a funny side of it, my wife does not want me going visiting a cemetery where maybe I would find a good-looking widow (laughs) visiting her father's grave, okay?
2: That's very funny. That's very funny. That does happen. You know, uh, that's very funny, Rick. I like that. Uh, Thank you for listening and thank you for calling. You know, Shatner met his wife, uh, met his fourth wife, when both he 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 was grieving over the loss of his third wife and his wife was grieving over the, the his future wife was grieving over the loss of her husband they'd both lost their loved ones right around the same time and they met i think it was at a horse farm it wasn't at a cemetery but sometimes grief does bring people together i you know i am a minister in the uh, universal life church and a wedding i did back in december was was two people who had both lost their spouse. And it was very emotional for them to get married again. But it, sometimes the grief does bring people together. I'm way late here. Those of you that are on hold, I will get to you if you want to hold. Uh, let me just squeeze in my friend Josh, who uh, is uh, in Rockland County. Hello, Josh.
3: Yeah, hi. I have three points. First of all, from a Jewish perspective, you're not allowed to, because you have a problem of reincarnation.
11: Number two, it's not your body. The
3: same reason you're not allowed to kill yourself while you're alive, you still, the body, you don't
11: own your body. And number three, the reason, the social reason, is because people just don't care about generations and where they come from and elders. It's just, we're living now,
3: nothing happened before us, and nothing is going to happen mm. after us.
2: Well, that is sad. Uh, that is sad, if that's the case. Josh, thank you for the call. AC Report, straight ahead, those of you that are holding, um... Some of you may want to be cremated when you see what you owe the casino, but uh, I'm, just, I'm just joking. But um, if you want to keep holding, I will get to you. Otherwise, we'll we'll talk Atlantic City and a bunch of other things. And uh, the next in our series of gubernatorial candidates to uh, come on this program, we're to talk with Tom Suozzi in about an hour. Looking forward to that conversation. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is the AC Report.
2: Well, they blew up the chicken man in Philly Last. It blew up his house too Down on the boardwalk They're ready for a fight Gonna see what them Racket boys can do Now there's trouble busting in
16: From out of state And the D.A. can't get No relief Gonna be a rumble
15: On the promenade and the Gambling commissioner's is hanging on by the skin of his teeth. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact. But maybe everything that dies, someday he comes back. Put
4: your makeup on, fix your hair up pretty, and meet me tonight in Atlantic City.
2: Well, it's time for our weekly look at one of the most interesting cities in the world, Monopoly City. Uh, For years, it was an East Coast gambling monopoly. And as more and more localities seemingly by the day add gambling, Atlantic City is trying to figure out its next steps. Now, I don't know where Atlantic City is going, but I do know, and as someone who has enjoyed going there since I was a child, not just for the gambling, but for all the amenities that Atlantic City has to offer, that when you watch... Watch what's happening in Atlantic City from a media perspective, from a, a sports perspective, from a gambling perspective, from a leisure, dining, and nightlife perspective, from an academic perspective? It sure is interesting. Somebody who has been chronicling what has been going on in Atlantic City for literally decades is Chuck Darrow. He spent more than four decades as a writer and broadcaster specializing in in uh, covering the Philadelphia region's arts, entertainments, and, of course, casinos. He writes for a number of publications these days, Philadelphia Weekly, The Sun Newspaper Group of South Jersey, and bettersinsider.com. Chuck, it's been too long. It's great to talk to you again. Hey, it
0: absolutely has, my friend. Uh, good to be back. And uh, hope everybody's swinging, getting At- ready for what looks like a real uh, big summer. Yeah, well, in uh, AC,
2: are you getting the sense that uh, that Atlantic City is going to have a big summer, uh, both in terms of uh, people visiting and in terms of, uh, of financially? Uh,
0: it, it would certainly seem that way. Of course, who knows what's around the corner? You know, the last two years has taught us anything, <laughs> yeah. never, you know, <laughs> nothing is a sure bet anymore. However, there is I don't know what the number is. I haven't done the math uh Exactly. But there is, uh, off the top of my head, probably close to a billion dollars worth of uh, renovation and capital improvements uh, up and down the city going on. And it's been going on really since, I'd say, the past year and a half or so. And, um, I mean, you name it, uh, all the all the work that's being done at Ocean, which uh, I think we might have touched on before. It's really the, the great success story the past couple of years uh, in Atlantic City, especially when you consider its roots as the uh, the biggest bomb of all time down there, biggest failure, which would be uh, Revel. Um, and uh, Bally's has put in about $100 million or pledged it. Uh, not all of it is spent yet. And probably the most money of all is being invested by Caesars Entertainment mm-hmm. uh, out of Reno, of all places. Uh, which uh, owns not only, of course, Caesar's Atlantic City, but also Tropicana and Harrah's Harrah's Resort, and they have uh, pledged, in total and ongoing over the past year or so, four hundred million dollars. So, wow! Well, yeah.
2: You know, you you touched upon a great deal there, and I want to follow up on a few of the things that you just said. But one know. of the things that you Just alluded to is something that I don't know that I've spent enough time covering over the course of the last two years, which is the success that the ocean had, whereas uh, it it is essentially the same building and looks almost exactly like the Revel, which was the most expensive casino that uh, that Atlantic City ever had about two billion dollars and uh, backed up in part by the taxpayers of the state of New Jersey. And they couldn't catch a break. I'm wondering if you can speak to that, Chuck. Why was the revel such a failure, whereas the ocean now seems to be such a success?
0: Because with all due respect to the people who opened that casino, casino hotel, it it, it seemed as if they worked from a manual that was titled how not to open a casino (laughs) in Atlantic City. They pretty much did everything wrong, every decision they made was just inexplicable. I'll give you some of the more glaring examples. They opened um, with, first of all, they created in their imagination some untapped market that consisted of 20 and 30-somethings basically in New York City who were dying to have an Atlantic City getaway, an, an ex- an crazily expensive Atlantic City getaway. I'll get back to that in a second. Uh, They opened, while it was noble indeed, they opened uh, totally non-smoking. And as we all know, somehow, you know, gambling and smoking does go together to some degree, uh, even today. They did not have a buffet, which they still don't, unfortunately, because I would imagine that they would have a great buffet they didn't have a players club a place where high rollers and and you know to use that term I'm not referring just to you know kind of in the public imagination the the guy who jets in you know on his own plane and bets 10,000 dollar hands blackjack or baccarat we're talking about the middle-aged woman who plays slot machines maybe three or four times a month and is willing to risk you know, $500 or $1,000 each time. They do, uh, The people who do that, they like a place where they can go and get a, a free drink, get away from the, the hoi polloi for a while and the craziness, maybe grab a little nosh, which these clubs have. And for some reason, Revel didn't have that. They also, uh, at the very beginning, did not have uh, what's called a tiered rewards card system. And of course, I'm sure you're aware of you know, that. When you, you go to any casino anywhere, it doesn't matter—not just Atlantic City. If you're a regular player, you're going to have a little credit card type of card. Mm-hmm. It's the same size and all, and you use that. That's how that's how the casinos clock your play, and that's what determines um, what comps you may receive. And the problem with Revel, one of, or the problem on that on that end with Revel was that it was not tiered. So a person playing $500 hand blackjack and a person playing $5 hand blackjack was getting, we're, were getting comped at the same rate, which is ridiculous. Oh,
2: right. Yeah. I mean, that's so, crazy. Yeah.
0: It was also, and one of the things, I mean, the, the new regime has done a fabulous job of overcoming this, obviously, but I remember being there um, early on and the first few times and, Every time it seemed I I overheard older people complaining because I think it's 2.6 million square feet. Oh, it's big. Absolutely. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. But it is also one of the architecturally one of the most spectacular properties in North America, at least that I've been. I've been in, you know, dozens and dozens and scores of casinos from here to the Oregon coast. So, um, you know, and this is this ranks with them pretty much, you know, every one. And let's talk about expensive because they, they created this for this, this market that didn't exist that they thought had all this disposable income. I'll never forget that first summer. It opened in, in April of, of 2012, and in August was the annual um, uh, air show, Lenox City air show, and uh, I was invited to watch that show from a balcony at Revel. And before the show started that morning, uh, I met uh, a friend of mine who at the time was the VP of Public Relations uh, and Marketing, I guess. I forget her exact title, but she did, ran the PR operation there and a couple of other people from, from the property, not for a full breakfast, simply for what amounted to pastry and coffee for the four of us. And the, the tab was sixty two dollars. Oh
2: my! Four, oh four, yeah. four, Now I, I mean, having been four, there, four, that doesn't surprise me at all. It cost me. You cost, it would cost you a fortune, even if you didn't get near a, uh, a a table game. That's for sure. Hey, if people are just tuning in, we're talking Atlantic City with Chuck Darrow. He's a veteran journalist. You can uh, check him out at bettersinsider.com. He also writes for Philadelphia Weekly and the uh, Sun Newspaper Group. Uh, You alluded, uh, Chuck, to the changes that are taking place, the improvements that are taking place at uh, at Caesars. Now, I know Caesars is uh, they've merged with El Dorado now. They own a few mm-hmm. casinos in Atlantic City. They have Harrah's, they have Caesars itself, and they have uh, the Tropicana. It looks like there's some exciting things happening at the Tropicana in terms of dining. But let's talk yep. about what's happening at, uh, at Caesars itself. What's, you had a great column on this in the Philadelphia Weekly. What's going on at Caesars? What are they actually doing? If people haven't been there in a couple of years, how will the Caesars that they visit now or 10 months from now differ from the Caesars of four or five years uh-huh. ago?
0: Well, um, first of all, let's just start with a little real fast, just very quick uh, his, historical context. Caesars, everybody who cares about this stuff you know, knows that Resorts uh, International, which is now Resorts Atlantic City, was the first casino. Or as I always like to point out, the first illegal casino east of Nevada, because there have always been casinos uh, in Atlantic City and elsewhere. Just until 1978, they were all run illegally not sanctioned by the state, not taxed by the state. Uh, So this was the second one. So it has some historical significance. It was uh, the first themed casino in Atlantic City. And Caesars and, I guess, uh, Circus Circus were the first two um, anywhere out in Vegas. And for some reason, I mean, there was a time when Caesars, for for 15 years, 20 years, Caesars was an A-list property. It was. It, it attracted the biggest names in the show business. I mean, just to name a few: Tony Bennett, Jerry Seinfeld, Julio Iglesias. Uh, they they all played there. It, it was just a regular stop for for the real big names, and the property was a very glittering and glamorous place to be. And for some reason, it, it, the company's name remains Caesar's Entertainment Inc. But it was it did have different owners five years ago. Let's say. And they, for some reason, made the decision to let this this property just degrade. Um, you know, rooms weren't modernized uh, with, you know, for instance, uh, uh, flat screen TVs, which is a I I just finished a uh, an eight night road trip, six hotels in eight nights uh, to St. Louis, Little Rock, uh, Memphis, and even the you know the not the, I don't to say the cheapest, but even the you know the, the typical roadside, you know, interstate side hotel has like a 30, 40 inch flat screen, you know, HD TVs. Um, it was just shabby. Uh, the spa, which would open, I forget when it opened, it's called Qua, Q-U-A. Maybe maybe it's pronounced Ka, I don't know. But um, it it, it, started, it opened really nice. It was when it, or it was very nice when it opened. And then the last time I was there a couple of years ago for a story, it was just dingy. I mean, just they just let it go to seed. And um of that four hundred million dollars that Caesars is in, Caesars Corporate is investing in all three properties, the lion's share is going to Caesars. So what they're they've already renovated uh eight hundred and fifty hotel rooms and suites for oh, and they did a lot of a lot of the stuff that we you and I, yeah, you know, customers would never see. Wow. The back of the house, so physical plant upgrades as well.
2: Now um, you write right that they're also Adding a, a Nobu, a legendary uh, sushi restaurant here in New York, run by Robert De Niro's group. When is that coming out? I can't wait to go to the Caesars Nobu.
0: Yeah, I, uh, let's see. So Nobu is is um, the restaurant. Uh, is they're targeting late summer. Um, I don't know exactly what late summer means—August or September—but before uh, before autumn. Let's call it that. And then they're taking three floors, I mean, the top three floors of the existing Centurion Tower, which is the skyscraping tower there, uh, and they're turning it into a Nobu-branded boutique hotel as well. And that's really huge because, as you know, as a New Yorker, that Nobu is a real favorite of the glitterati. Oh yeah! I mean, oh it, no, it, it that is, that'd be
2: uh, that'd yeah. be big. Now Ocean, because it is so new, you don't think about that as a property that really needs many improvements. But you write that they've made uh, significant renovations and have more planned. What are they doing exactly?
0: Well, they too have uh, upped their game in a lot of ways. They they've uh, opened the cup. Now I think they opened two separate high uh, end private gambling spaces, uh, one of which I think is way up on the top floor, if I'm not mistaken. Um, They've, um, I think they spruced up their their existing restaurant stock. Nothing new is there. Um, Actually, there's one. It used to be, uh, okay, now I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank, but their seafood restaurant, which is called uh, Dolce del Mar, Mm -hmm. Mar, perhaps, uh, it, was, it used to be called something else. Uh, but anyway, overall, uh, Amada, which is sort of a Mediterranean-style place uh, from mega-chef um, Jose Garces, is still there. That, if you, that's a real special occasion. If you're in Atlantic City, you're really looking for a different and great dining experience. Um, Amada, A-M-A-D-A, is there. But that was there when it opened. But the uh main thing is that right in the center of that beautiful glass hotel tower are some four hundred and fifty five hundred hotel rooms that never were completed hmm. as re- when Revel opened, so that's a major. Um, project there.
2: Well, yeah, hopefully it'll be That's easier to nice. get a room. Uh, we're talking yeah. with Chuck Darrow, a veteran casino journalist and life, a casino lifestyle specialist. He writes for bettersinsider.com. Hey, I'm hearing that the burlesque show is returning to the Borgata. I've actually never as many times as I've been to the Borgata and my fondness for the for the craft of burlesque. I've never seen the burlesque show at Borgata. Uh, tell me what what have I been missing? Is it worth checking out?
0: Well, y- yes. It, it, let's put it this way: it always has been uh, since 2013 uh, when it first opened. It was because it is basically a tribute to classic burlesque. There are sh- strippers, not strippers as in gentlemen's club strippers, but strippers that you would have seen, or let's say. Your grandfather would have you know, sure. And his buddies would have seen in the nineteen forties and fifties. Uh, it's done tastefully. There's, uh, as a matter of fact, my uh, column in uh, tomorrow Fridays uh, or on the website uh, tomorrow is about the uh, the new version of it. Um, the women are beautiful. They're sexy, but it's not in any way. It, it's it, I mean as as tastefully done as it can be something like this can be it is the, the the women who do it they're wonderful but what made it really kind of cool and special over the years and i'm sure this new one will be as well is the comedy element because burlesque uh they, they were the two main elements comedy you had the strippers on one hand and by the way when just so everybody knows when i say strippers they do peel down generally to uh panties and pasties because in the state of New Jersey, uh, nudity is not allowed in any venue that serves alcohol. So you will never, so it's not in, in your face. Every, anything goes. Again, every, it's done tastefully. It's it's incredibly well staged. It's, it's very richly staged. But the comedy is, is coarse. Be, be forewarned. This is an adult only show, 21-plus uh, to get in. And it is usually hilarious, and now it's kind of the sad part of the story. The the reason it was so hilarious was because the uh, perennial host and MC and and lead comic of the show was a gentleman named Jeff Parami, who was – he was one of these people that um, I I always describe as – as I'm I'm listening to him and I'm thinking to myself, this is so – just it's not – that funny it's sort of it's it's vulgar but i mean you know it, it's just not my cup of tea it's not sophisticated as i'm wiping the tears from my eyes <laughs> because i'm laughing so hard okay and jeff sadly died oh. in 2020 yeah and so for the first time the, the show will have a new comic i've never seen him so i can't say uh whether or not you know um he is as funny as jeff was but I, I will tell you that I have every confidence in the show's producer, Alan Valentine, who also uh, is now at uh, currently at Hard Rock. He has the uh, weekly 80s live show. Well,
2: no, that sound, it sounds great. And so it's at so would, the Music I would, Box. I would recommend it. Yes. It's at the Music in, Box in the music at box. the Borgata. Looks like it starts uh, May 5th. Should be interesting. If you want to yeah, read and more Every of, Thursday. Uh, every Thursday, beginning, uh, beginning May 5th. Um, if you want to um, read more about what Chuck is covering, check out bettersinsider.com. Chuck, I look forward to seeing you the next time I'm down there. I'm not sure when that'll be, but hopefully sooner rather than later.
0: Let me know. Hopefully, we'll see you at the opening of Noble, at least.
2: Uh, I, I certainly hope. Fingers crossed. Chuck Darrow, ladies and gentlemen. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation? You're welcome to give me a call. 1 800 848 WABC. That's 800 848 9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Shake Shake, shake,
2: shake. Listen, listen while I talk to you. I tell you what we're gonna do. There's a new thing that's going around, and I'll tell you what to put down. Just move your body all around and just
1: shake. Oh.
2: The great I'm Sam Cooke singing Shake, out. absolutely, and nobody better. If you ever want to know what music we play on this show, who the artist is, what the title of the song is, uh, just join our Facebook group. Go to uh, Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Or if you like my Facebook page at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan, we'll instantly send you uh, an invite to join the Facebook group. Let me say hello to you, Billy in Long Island City. Hello, Billy. Hey, Frank, this is a great show tonight. I used to Thanks. live in Las Vegas in the late 80s. I went to ULV,
7: and I used to bartend in Vegas. Cool. And most of my, friend, Where'd right, your most of my friends... Where'd you bartend? I bought, I tell everyone I used to work at the hottest nightclub in Vegas, which was true back in the 1980s, but there was only two nightclubs in the whole town. <laughs> so which one did no you one work at? It. I worked at Botany's.
2: Oh, Botany's. Okay, I'm not familiar with it, but uh, it's. I know the reputation.
7: Yeah, it was yeah, it was. a big hot spot in the, in the, sure. late, in the 80s in, in Vegas. But most of my friends were born and raised in Vegas, and their parents used to always ask me because I was a from the East Coast about Atlantic City. And I only went there once. I don't know Atlantic City. But in the late seventies, that was a big scare for everyone in Vegas when Atlantic City got their, when Jersey got their gambling. License, but Atlantic City never took off the way they thought it would. You're right, it really
2: never became well, it did take off. They did look for years, it was a six billion dollar gambling market that's nothing to sneeze at. But, um, you're right, it never became a competitor to Las Vegas, and there's a lot of theories as to why that's the case. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, that. well, that's one. But uh, there's certainly a lot of uh, mis- mistakes that the city, the people that ran the city, uh, many of whom couldn't steal enough money, uh, many of those people were making over the course of decade, decades.
7: But I'll, I'll tell you, I, when I was to out there in the late 80s, you had guys every hitters come. They lived right there in Jersey. And they said they get take it. It's cheaper for them to go to Vegas because they would give you comps like crazy. In Vegas, they took care of the people. And in Atlantic City, they'd be spending big money all weekend, and they had to beg for, like, a free ticket to a show or something. And they didn't take care of the people. This is from heavy hitters on these East Coast. No, I don't doubt
2: it, Billy. As I was saying, I think a lot of uh, Atlantic City's problems, when they were in a position to really put a scare into Las Vegas and be a legitimate competitor, are self-inflicted. Great call, Billy. Thank you. Hey, uh, coming up next, I'll tell you what I did to celebrate ulysses s grant's 200th birthday what did you do and uh, i'll tell you about a gentleman with a hologram wife and give you an opportunity to win a thousand dollars oh and by the way i'll introduce you to a gentleman that wants to be your next governor oh all that we're still going still a lot to show to get to Show me another radio show that has this much action. Come on. And those of you that are holding, I will try and get to you uh, shortly. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Marano. Until next hour, in the immortal words of the great Bob Grant, your influence counts. So use it.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Marano.
2: Maybe it's the beginning of your day. Maybe it's the end of your day. Maybe you just got up to urinate in the middle of the night and you're not sure if it's the beginning or the end. Whatever the case may be, turn your radio up. If you fell asleep with the radio on and I am now uh, providing the background of your dreams, then um, keep in mind for those of you only seeing me in dream form that I am much more handsome than you probably think I am and let your dreams reflect that. Hey, uh, speaking of fiction... Do you know what a fictosexual is? you have any idea? I never heard the term until yesterday, but I've spent a good part of my day yesterday studying fictosexuality. Fictosexuality is an umbrella term for anyone who would experience sexual attraction towards fictional characters, a general type of fictional characters, or whose sexuality is influenced by, ficti- fic- by fictional characters. See, I wonder, so I- I've talked about when I was four or five years old, seeing Uhura on Star Trek and just falling in love with a fictional character. Does that make me a fictosexual? I don't think so, even as a five-year-old, and I'll tell you why. W- because Nichelle Nichols, who played Uhura, was a real person. So maybe part of my attraction was less to the character of Uhura and more towards uh, Nichelle Nichols, right? Okay. Well, anyway, the reason this is coming up is because a... Of course, this story comes to us out of Japan, right? A fictosexual man who wed a fictional computer-synthesized pop singer four years ago said he's now unable to communicate with his wife but is still in love with her. Yes. Um, Akiko Kondo was dating Hatsune Miku depicted in pop culture as a 16 year old with turquoise hair for a decade dating this person for a decade before they had an unofficial wedding ceremony in 2018. Kondo, one of many apparently who identifies as fictosexual or someone who's, sexually attracted to fictional characters, spent 2 million yen, okay, or $17,300 on the nuptials, but his family didn't attend. Go figure. They didn't want to go see his wedding to a hologram. Imagine that. At least somebody in that family's got a brain. Now they've been married for four years, and Kondo, that's the guy, that's the real guy, said his relationship has hit a roadblock. He can no longer speak with Miku due to a technological hurdle. This is according to a Japanese newspaper. While Kondo acknowledges his relationship might be odd, he understands Miku isn't a real person. It doesn't change his feelings towards her. Since falling in love with her in 2008, Kondo was finally able to interact with Miku for the first time in 2017, Thanks to Gatebox, to a Gatebox, a $1,300 machine that allowed device owners to interact with characters via holograms and even unofficially marry them. But now, his four-year marriage took a turn when support for Gatebox software was eliminated. Ah. Wow, wow, wow. Meaning that Kondo could no longer speak with his wife, Miku. So... Kondo insists his feelings hasn't changed. It hasn't lessened in feelings, his feelings at all. Quote, my love for Miku hasn't changed. I held the wedding ceremony because I thought I could be with her forever. Kondo is far from the only person in the world in a relationship with a character. Thousands of fictosexual people in Japan have begun similar unofficial relationships with a variety of fictitious figures. While some relationships are just for kicks, condos is to him very real. For a long time, he said he knew a human partner just wasn't for him due to his intense attraction to characters like Miku. You know, I'm sorry. I am the self-proclaimed least judgmental person on the face of the earth. Self-proclaimed. I I think this is incredibly weird. I mean, you, you're going to, you're going to fall in love with a hologram. I mean, that's just bizarre. If you'll pardon my saying. And you know it's I think people get into they use this as an excuse to isolate from the rest of society, which I have to be honest and again, I, I, I maybe I'm going to lose my title as the least judgmental person on earth, but I find this really unhealthy. I find this not only unhealthy for Mr. Kondo, but I find this unhealthy for society at large. I think we need to be helping people integrate to society, with society. It's not to say that there's not a lot of positives that can come out of of interacting with holograms or artificial intelligence even. But I think that should all further a human connection not help you withdraw further into your solitude aided only by a computer-generated hologram, one which you're now not even able to talk to. Thoughts, questions, comments, criticisms. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Very quickly, I do want to remind you that in addition to doing this radio show I host a a very popular podcast, and I have a – it's called The Racket Report, and you can get it wherever podcasts are available. Just search The Racket Report on iTunes, Spotify, CastBox, whatever. Hit the subscribe button, and whenever there's a new episode, you'll immediately get a a notification on your iPod or your mobile phone. And uh, I have a feeling the most recent edition of The Racket Report will go down as the most listened to one yet. My guest – was, and this is fresh, just happened yesterday, was Angel Gotti. Angel Gotti is the daughter of John Gotti Sr. and the sister, oldest sister, of John Gotti Jr. So um, I've known Angel for a long time, probably about 18 years, and I asked her a little bit about, because I I got to know her through her brother's trials primarily through all four trials that I went to, and she was there every day. Now, I didn't cover her father's trials. I followed them just as an observer, but I, did, I was not in the courtroom. So I asked her, you know, her father was on trial a bunch of times before ultimately dying in prison. I asked her about the differences in her father, John Gotti's legal cases, compared to her brother, John Gotti Jr.'s legal cases. This That's uh, what she said. You, as you mentioned, you were a... Daily presence at all four of your brother's trials. It's really amazing to think that the federal government spent this amount of time, energy, and effort after four trials in five and a half years and got zero convictions. But what do you think the key differences were between your brother's four trials and your father's trials?
10: What were the differences? The differences is that my brother admitted to something, he pled guilty to it, and he went to prison. And while he was in prison and my father was sick, and then when my father died, my brother wanted to not follow in my father's footsteps. My father wanted to be, my brother, I'm sorry, wanted to be home with his wife and children and all of us.
2: There you have it. Um, I think if you want to hear the whole podcast, you should go to wabcradio.com, look for the Racket Report, or just search the Racket Report. On any podcast. Hey, I want to thank um, our owner, John Katsimatidis and uh, his wife, Margo, for inviting me uh, to this dinner at the Union League Club yesterday. <clears throat> they had, I had to go to a, an event for Dr. Oz. So they were just leaving as I was getting there. So I didn't get to spend much time with John and Margo. But um, they had a table at this event and it was uh, so much fun. It was an event all about the 200th birthday celebrating Ulysses S. Grant. Now, I don't pretend to be a historian. I don't pretend to be a history expert at all, at all. So whenever people call into the show and say, oh, I know more about history than you, you're probably right. You probably do. Um, I am just someone that really enjoys history and really likes history and really loves history. Learning about it. Those are my favorite books to read are b- books like presidential biographies and so forth. And Ulysses Grant, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, to me, is one of the most fascinating people in modern American history for a few reasons. One, because um, he smoked 20 cigars a day. <laughs> Two, because he did. Uh, he was a very heavy drinker. Three, because almost all of his life, he was a total failure. From West Point on down, his aspiration, you know what his aspiration was when he was at West Point? To maybe one day become an assistant math professor. That was what he tried. That was what he wanted to do. Then he became a tanner, was working with his father as a tanner. And uh, it was just through such a, a bizarre series of events that he turned out to be the right man at the right time and was pivotal In helping the union win the civil war without his leadership, I don't know that the union would have won the civil war. And then he's also interesting to me for another reason, because there are some presidents that are always regarded in the toilet that no amount of time is going to rehabilitate their reputation. People like uh, James Buchanan. People like uh, Millard Fillmore, Warren G. Harding is probably in that category as well. There are other presidents that are always considered great presidents. George Washington, 100 years from now, is going to be considered just as great as he is now. Abraham Lincoln, 100 years from now, he's going to be considered just as great as he is now. People like uh, Thomas Jefferson, FDR, Teddy Roosevelt, they're always going to be considered great presidents, okay, for better or worse. But what I find so fascinating about about grant is everybody acknowledges that he was a great general and his uh, incredible work as a soldier, but as a president at various times, his reputation has been near the bottom, near the bottom with Warren G. Harding and James Buchanan and the rest. And now His reputation throughout different times in history, it's fluctuated. He's considered a good president, a bad president, a terrible president, never, never really to the level of a great president. But um, his reputation has developed this incredible um, rehabilitation. And so they did this event at the Union League Club uh, for his 200th birthday. And John was kind enough to invite me to his table uh, a great talk on Grant by Frank Scaturo of the Grant Monument Association. And I ended up sitting next to this fella. He wasn't one of the people at our table, but I ended up sitting next. to I had Jeanine Pirro on one side of me. She was to the right. And on the left side of me was this fella, Ryan, who serves in the Army National Guard in New Jersey. And he's such a grantophile. And he knew all about Grant. And I went out. And and you know what the marquee event was? was a colloquy. Featuring two Grant biographers, Ron Chernow, who, of course, is well known for writing the uh, Hamilton book that became the basis for the play. He wrote a Grant book in 2017, which is very highly regarded, and I bought it and I, I got him to sign it for me and Ronald White. Who wrote the book American Ulysses, A Life of Ulysses S. Grant. I'm really looking forward to reading both books. I've read some other Chernow books and uh, I think he's a very good writer and a great historian. And I've liked a lot of his talks. But they had this colloquy with this talk between the two of them. And you know who the moderator of the colloquy was? General Petraeus. General Petraeus was there. Uh, I didn't get to talk to him, but it, he was a, is a grantophile as well. But I was talking to this fellow, Ryan, all about Grant because he saw me holding the books that I had just purchased. And he said, um, "He said, have you read that book? I said, no. And then I said, well, did you read this one? And then I started asking him all sorts of questions about both books. Now I'm really excited to read both. And I said, Ryan, give me an anecdote to share on the radio tonight about Grant That says a lot about Grant, something about Grant that not a lot of people know. And he talked about his memoirs, which some people say is the best memoirs of any president ever written. And he said they had intelligence that there was some there was a Confederate army that was going to meet them on a hill to do battle. And Grant was terrified, terrified of this forthcoming battle. And then he goes and meets the, goes to this hill where this army's supposed to be, and the army's not there. They're not there. And Grant writes in his memoir that's when he realized that the Confederate army is just as terrified of him as he was of them. And I thought that was a great anecdote to repeat. And I learned so much from this colloquy. And I'm really so grateful that uh, John and Margo invited me because it's not an event that I would have thought to go to. And I learned so much. And I'm excited to read uh, both of these books. I've always been interested in Grant, uh, all aspects of his life. And um, I, I'm always interested to be with historians that know a great deal about it. But anyway, so I'm at this event and this fella Jerry, who I've met before – Uh, when I've emceed events at the Queen's Republican Club, whose, whose wife is a big listener to this show, this fella, Jerry Maticata, comes running up to me. I don't even think he said hello. He said, he he said, Hey, I didn't tell John Katzimatidis when he was here, but I'm going to tell you. All right. Well, I'm already bracing for a complaint. He says, You got a guy on your station. I like him. I like him a lot. Uh, Bo Snerdly. I said, OK, all right. I have nothing to do with Boston Nerdly show. I don't control anything he says. I have nothing to do with it. He says he went and said that Ulysses Grant was corrupt. And sure enough, we looked through the archives, and he did indeed say that.
0: Ulysses S. Grant, one of the most corrupt presidents in United States history.
2: Wasn't his fault. Wasn't keeping his eye on the store. I guess it was his fault. So he gave me an earful, this guy, Jerry, and says, you tell him that Ulysses S. Grant was not corrupt. It was corruption in his administration, but he he himself was not corrupt. He's one of the greatest generals we've ever had, and he was a decent president. So tell him that. So. You can agree, you can disagree, but that's what Jerry Maticata said. <laughs> and I promised that I would, uh, I would say, I would offer equal time to Jerry as uh, as you heard from uh, from uh, James James Golden there. But make your own judgments, I guess. All right, we're gonna do the thousand dollar minute because in a little early because we're we'll talking with Tom Swazey in about ten minutes. If you want to, um, th- and those of you that are holding and want to be heard on any of the topics we're talking about, I'll still try and get to you. But if you want to be – if you want to try and win $1,000 by answering a few trivia questions, be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Oh, and so you know who I got to spend a lot of time with at this event? Governor David Patterson and his wife Mary, who I've known since she was Mary Sliwa, obviously. And uh, Mary just sent us the most beautiful gift ever, um, and, and I'll, I, I described it on air, and and we were talking about it. I let her know how much I appreciated it. And um, I got to spend a lot of time with Governor Patterson and Janine Pirro. So I took a picture of the three of us. It's a tripartisan photo, Judge Pirro and, and um, Governor Patterson. It's on my Twitter, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And so what we're going to do... I think it's a great photo. I think it has the potential to go viral. If you retweet that photo, whoever retweets it with the most clever comment, we're going to send a complimentary The Other Side of Midnight t-shirt, too. So I'll make the decision by the end of the show. But go to my Twitter, at Frank Moreno. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And whoever tweets the most clever comment with the retweet will give you a a a shirt. It could take a shot at me. I mean, you shouldn't take a shot at Janine or Governor Patterson, because they're both uh, – well, I don't know Judge Jeanine as well, but I know Governor Patterson is a great guy. And she was concerned when we were taking this photo. Uh, Chad Lopez, our president, was taking the photo. And she said, oh, look at me. We're taking a photo. while well, I have food in my teeth. I said, Judge, with that photo, no one is – I mean, with that, with that dress you're wearing, nobody is looking at your teeth. And if you see this picture, you will see that I am exactly right. All right. Without further ado, it's time for
1: The Other Side of Midnight presents – It's the thousand-dollar minute. Answer ten questions correctly in one minute, and you could win one thousand
0: dollars. Here's your host,
2: Frank. Ah, straight to the game we go. Let's say a little, Matt in New Jersey. Good morning, Matt. Hey, how you doing, Frank? All right, Matt. I assume you know the rules of this contest, right? I do. Okay, so the timer will begin after I ask the first question. You get a question right. We're just moving on to the next one so we can get all, through all 10 of them in, in 60 seconds. Ready to go? I'm ready. What colors are on the American flag?
5: Red, white, and blue.
2: What is H2O commonly known as? Water. What famous rock band are Keith Richards and Mick Jagger members of? Rolling Stones. How many innings are in a typical baseball game? Nine. Who was president of the Confederate States of America? Robert E. Lee. Ah, uh, I'm sorry. It was uh, Jefferson Davis was the president. Oh, God, you're right. Yeah, uh, he was a general. He was the commanding general. You did well, yeah, though. You did well, though, Matt. I'm going to put you on hold. We're going to give you a consolation prize. Give Philippe your address. Tom Swasey straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. I'm Frank Morano. Well, you may not have noticed, but there is an election for governor rapidly approaching. Just how rapidly? Well, a decision that came out of the Court of Appeals yesterday may uh, give us the answer to that, although it may not. And we've been trying to feature all the candidates for governor, irrespective of party, on this show. So at least when you go to vote, both in the primary and the general election, you have some idea of who these folks are, why they're asking for your vote and which candidates best, uh, you know, represent your values. We are very, very fortunate this morning to be joined by uh, someone who I've been following for many years, ever since his days of doing the Fix Albany PAC about 18 years ago, Democratic Congressman from Long Island and a little bit of Queens, and currently a Democratic candidate for governor of New York State, the one and only Tom Swasey. Congressman, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, Frank, thanks so much for having me on the other side of midnight. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm glad we uh, got you on. I know it's a tough hour, believe me. Um, now, I want to talk to you about some of the issues that you've been campaigning on, but I, I don't think we can avoid the big news out of the last 24 hours, which is this Court of Appeals decision, which uh, has the, the them throwing out the congressional maps and the state Senate maps. A lot of Democrats not too happy that this may cause the Republicans to win a few more seats than they otherwise would. What's your reaction to the Court of Appeals decision? Well, this is
13: another failure of the Hochul administration. I've said since the beginning it was gerrymandering. The question is whether or not they followed the rules. And according to the Court of Appeals, they didn't follow the rules. Uh, so this is another mess that the whole administration uh, supported. You know, the legislature drew the lines, and she signed the legislation to allow it. And uh, between this and the Buffalo Bills deal and the lieutenant governor getting indicted and failure to address the crime problems and on and on and on, this is just a, a failing administration. It's no wonder that a poll came out the other day that says she has only a 36 percent job favorability rating.
2: Mm. Now, just so folks understand why you decided to get in this race, you had a pretty safe congressional district and uh, had a a lot of appeal on both sides of the aisle. You probably could have stayed in Congress in the seat that you're in now until the day that you died. Why give up? You're giving up what would have been a safe reelection where you could have been a major player in Washington and advocated for New York on a lot of issues that are important. uh, You know, federal funding and, you know, the SALT deduction. A whole bunch of other things that you've been very vocal on Why give that up in in order to embark on this bid for governor Which a lot of people consider to be something of a long shot
13: Well it is a long shot It's a tough race And it's a great honor and a great responsibility To be a member of the United States Congress And I enjoy it and I'm pretty good at it But I'm just so frustrated with our politics And our discourse these days And I feel just fighting with each other instead of solving problems I'm I'm, I'm really upset about New York state. People are leaving in droves. We have the highest taxes in the United States of America. We see this crime rate is rising and nobody's doing anything about it. Uh, And also, you know, you mentioned I'm a Democrat. I'm a lifelong Democrat. I'm concerned about my party. Mm. My party is going too far to the left. And it's not talking about the things that people care about. People care about crime and taxes. That's the big issues in New York state right now. And corruption, of course. And so I feel that everything I've done in my life has prepared me for this particular job at this particular t- time. I'm uh, I'm trained as a lawyer and a CPA. I was the mayor of a small city in my hometown, Glen Cove, where I learned how to run government. I was the County Executive of a, of a failing County. I turned it around one of the biggest counties in the country, bigger than 11 States. And uh, I ran the 12th largest police department in the country, bigger than Detroit or Boston uh, at the lowest crime rate in the United States of America, for any community of over 500,000 people. And now I'm in Congress. And I feel like everything I've done has prepared me for this particular job right now. So I'm risking it all try and turn things around.
2: I know that uh, you were a supporter of Mayor Eric Adams. Mayor Eric Adams was very laudatory uh, towards you and your record, your knowledge of government. In fact, he said publicly that he was hoping that you would become a deputy mayor. How seriously did uh, did you take that offer from Mayor Adams? Clearly, New York City is in need of leadership now just as much as New York State is, and we've got a lot of problems. The crime rate has actually gone up over the course of the last four and a half months, and it had already gone up. The previous this year and the previous year did you seriously consider becoming a deputy mayor
13: you know i was very flattered by the offer offer from the mayor but i said to him uh after thinking about it talking about it with my family uh i can do a lot more to help him as governor of new york state and to help new york city and the problems in in new york city with crime especially are because of the state laws uh that the governor refuses to change and the state legislature refuses to change uh so I can do a lot more to help Eric Adams. I can do a lot more to help the people of New York City uh, as governor of New York State. So I declined his offer politely. Uh, I I still support him uh, 100 percent. But I'm going to I'm going to try and become the governor of New York State and help turn around New York City and the rest of the state.
2: Um, I want to talk about crime and I want to talk about the cost of living. Those are the two issues that you've been uh, that you've been focused on. But I have to also get your take on the indictment of the lieutenant governor, Brian Benjamin. This came as a surprise to exactly no one that occasionally reads the newspaper or knows how to operate Google. I think even Stevie Wonder could see uh, that Brian (laughs) Benjamin was in legal trouble. Um, In your view, I'm guessing you think this reflects poorly on the leadership and the judgment of Governor Hochul.
13: Well, it's a complete lack of judgment. It shows her inexperience, quite frankly. I mean, she's been in government for a long time, but she never ran a big operation. She was a lieutenant governor. She served in Congress for less than two years. Uh, She was a county clerk, uh, and she was a town councilman. She was never the chief executive. And listen, you've got to do your 10,000 hours to run a big operation like New York State. It's a $220 billion operation. And New York State, you know, all politics. You've got a lot of times... You have the chief executives, mayors, governors, president, who've never run anything before. They don't know how to run a large operation. One unique thing that I bring to this job, trained as a lawyer, trained as a CPA, mayor of a small city, county executive of a big county, uh, now in Congress, I know how to make things work in government. I know how to hold people accountable. I know how to set a goal, set vision, uh, and try and build a team to accomplish that goal, it's easy to make speeches and make pronouncements and pass legislation. Getting things done in government requires a skill set. I believe I've got that skill set, and she simply doesn't. I, I don't listen.
2: Think, go ahead, the
13: lieutenant governor. I mean, like you said, everybody knew this guy had ethical problems surrounding him. Everybody, it was announced the day he was announced. It was he was uh, inaugurated. Uh, people talked about his scandals. Uh, they haunted him for a while. November it came out that he hadn't filled out his vetting forms properly he never admitted that he was subpoenaed by the federal government and she doubled down on him and then she tripled down on him uh, even after they said that they were a uh, the grand jury was speaking to him and uh, it's really just it's really just the same old story in New York state we've lost governors attorney general controller Skello, silver bruno it's, it's just it's it's
11: it's it's terrible.
2: I don't think anybody, wherever they fall on the political spectrum, would dispute that we've got a corruption problem in New York and the cost of that corruption is leading to higher taxes, wasteful spending, a whole bunch of other things. As Absolutely. part of as, as part of that yesterday, you unveiled a, an ethics reform proposal. Give us the highlights. What are the key uh, the key aspects of your ethics reform proposal? Well,
13: why do you need an ethical reform proposal? I mean, we just saw this Buffalo Bills deal mm. that she slipped in to the budget four days before the budget was due, no public hearings, the most lucrative taxpayer giveaway in the history of the NFL, uh, and not even a single person has, has had a public hearing on it. I mean, I said, I said, listen, and, you know, Brian Benjamin and all the other things on and on. So I laid out six points along with my running mate, Diana Reina. Diana Reina was a, former uh, Brooklyn city councilwoman, deputy borough president to Eric Adams uh, for four years. Uh, If she's elected, she'll be the first Latina elected statewide in the history of New York State. So we laid out six proposals. Number one, anything that's not in the executive's budget, the governor's budget, or the state assembly's budget, or the Senate's budget, that's for $10 million or more, has to go through a public hearing. Mm. Pretty straightforward stuff. It was not only the Buffalo Bills to get a bunch of votes. She put another, another $350 million uh, for the Long Island, uh, Long Island legislators. No line items, no vetting, no discussion. Just, no, oh, let's put another $350 million in. So you want to do something like that, you have to have a public hearing. Number two, lower the contribution limits to the same as it is at the federal level. $2,900 for the primary, $2,900 only individuals, no corporations. You know what it is in New York State right now? People don't realize. Almost $70,000 between the primary and the general. And the governor has gotten more $70,000 checks from people doing business with the state, lobbyists, people trying to get a cannabis license, people who have a nursing home and are regulated by the state, developers trying to do a development to get support from the state. That's why she's raised so much money, all from people doing business with the state. Nobody who says, I'm inspired by the governor's vision. I'm inspired by the Buffalo Bills deal. I'm inspired by Brian Benjamin getting indicted. I'm inspired by by the fact she hasn't done a thing about addressing crime. No, it's all people doing business with the state. Third, we should do quarterly reports uh, for financial disclosure. The last disclosure was in early January. The next one's not going to be until the end of May. Uh, Fourth, we have to make sure that uh, uh, the government of New York uh, is something that is fair and that people can look at. Uh, So I go on and on in these proposals, and, uh, you know, it's just – it's time we wake up to the reality that we shouldn't be able to use taxpayer money to do what are, in effect, campaign commercials right before the election. Uh, If people are
2: just tuning in, we're talking with Congressman Tom Swasey. He's a Democratic candidate for governor in the primary, which is currently scheduled for late June. Who knows what effect the uh, Court of Appeals decision may have on pushing all the primaries back, or perhaps it'll just be the congressional and the state Senate primary that gets pushed back. You've made crime your biggest issue in this campaign. Your, Your commercials focus on crime. Every interview that you do, you look for an opportunity to speak about crime. Polling reflects that this is not... not just a problem for Republicans, Democrats, Republicans, independents. Everybody views crime in New York State, New York City as a big problem. How do you fix it as governor? And if the legislature remains recalcitrant and doesn't want to do things like tweak the bail reform laws, how can you get around a legislature that may not be in line with what you want to do?
13: Well, I've laid out a 15 point crime intervention and prevention plan. Intervention, the things we need to do right now make people feel safe. And prevention, things we need to do for the long term to address the systemic problems in our society, where 75% of the people in jail have a drug, alcohol, or mental health issue. 50% of the people at Rikers Island have a learning disability. These are education issues. These are community issues. Uh, I have plans to address those issues. But intervention right now, let's give the mayor of New York City what he wants. Let's give the police commissioner what she wants. Let's give the chief judge what they want. Let's give the the district attorneys, what they want, let's give judges the discretion to consider dangerousness of every defendant that comes before them. Every other state in the United States of America, forty-nine other states, and the federal government all have a dangerousness standard. New York's the only place that doesn't have that. I mean, that's just that's just straightforward common sense. Uh, let's let's address the problems that have been created from this raise the age legislation, where now gang members have an incentive to give. 16 and 17 year old firearms. And they say, listen, you don't have to worry. You're not going to get, you're not going to get busted. Don't worry about it. And we've seen a dramatic increase in young people carrying guns. Uh, we have to address the, the changes in the discovery law that are resulting in a bunch of these cases getting dismissed because the police and the district attorneys can't possibly comp- comply with these onerous timelines. They don't have the resources uh, to do that. So, uh, It goes on and on what we need to do with guns uh, by setting up an interstate commission, uh, doing shot spotters, doing gun buyback programs. There's so many things that we need to do to try and address uh, the crime problem that we have in the state of New York. Uh, I know what I'm doing. She simply has ignored
10: the problem. But
2: what if the legislature won't act? I mean, you could try and get your reforms in through the budget, some through executive order. uh, But what if the legislature doesn't want to move?
13: Well, you said earlier on that when I was a uh, county executive, I started a thing called FixAlbany.com. And the idea is, is that if I get elected governor, uh, people are going to – That's going to be a message sent that crime is the number one issue that we have to face because that's the number one issue in my campaign. But then I'll go out and I'll build a, a consensus among the public. Mm-hmm. I'll develop a comprehensive plan with input from the mayors, from the police commissioners, from the judiciary, from the corrections officials. From the pro- probation and parole, from the mental health experts, from the academics. I'll bring everybody in. I'll bring the legislators in. I'll bring the committees of jurisdiction. I'll bring every, I've done this throughout my career of building a consensus by putting together all the players in a room and saying, listen, we all want the same thing. Nobody's for crime. Let's talk about all of our differences. Let's find a common sense way to move forward that we can all agree upon. Then I'll sell that plan to the public. Then I'll bring it to the legislature and say, come on, listen. The public's with me. It's a comprehensive plan. We've got all the support. Let's do this. And then I'll say, hey, listen, you want to negotiate? Okay, you need to have something done in your in your district. Let's work on that. I'll try and cajole you and, and make a deal with you. If that doesn't work, I'll run people against you. I'll go against you. That's what I did when I did com. I defeated a Democrat in the Assembly and a Republican in the State Senate until Joe Bruno and Shelley Silver started to listen to me. And I became the president of the New York State County Executives Association, and I got a Medicaid cap. I got them to listen to what the county executives were looking for. So I know what it takes to get things done in politics. I've been doing it a long time. I'll build a plan. I'll get the public on my side. I'll try and persuade the legislature. I'll try and cajole them. I'll try and make a deal with them. If that doesn't work, let's go to battle.
2: Uh, you, um, you indicated early on when Alvin Bragg put out his now controversial memo that uh, you would not be at all tolerant of that kind of behavior from district attorneys in a state with a governor, Tom Swasey. As of now, you know, it looks like Alvin Bragg has backed off some of the more controversial aspects of that non-enforcement memo. If you were to be elected governor in November, take office in January, would you relieve Alvin Bragg as DA or do you think he's backed off enough of those con- controversial proposals that he should remain in power.
13: Well, I think he's backed off enough. Uh, I would bring the district attorneys together as the governor and say, listen, we got to work as a team. And the job of the district attorneys is to enforce the law. It's not not your job to make the law. You want to make the law, run for state legislature, run for the state senate or the state assembly if you want to change the law. But the law says that you prosecute people for resisting arrest. The law says that you prosecute people for a felony for armed robbery, regardless of whether or not they used a gun or regardless of whether or not someone got hurt. That's a felony. So it's not up to the district attorney to decide they're not going to prosecute certain crimes. It's their job to enforce the law. Now, when they don't have a good case, they don't have to enforce those cases. That's their discretion. But their job is to enforce the law. You want to change the law? Run for state legislature. So no, I would not remove him. I think he's changed his his tune, uh, admirably so. I've actually spoken to him since then. I said, listen, I'm not against you as a person. I know you're a smart person. I know you're new to politics. You got a very important job. Let's, let's figure out how we can work together to accomplish our common goals, which is to make sure people are safe and to make sure that there's justice as well. I know that there's systemic problems where a lot of black and brown people were treated very unfairly over the course of the, uh, our lifetimes. Let's address those issues. But In the meanwhile, let's enforce the law.
2: You talked about how one of the factors that led to your decision to run for governor was a concern about the future of the Democratic Party. You know, I'm listening to you focus on some of the same issues that the Republican candidates for governor talked to me about crime, the cost of living, corruption in Albany, corruption in the Halko administration. There's a perception, rightly or wrongly, that the Democratic Party, particularly the Democratic primary electorate, has moved so far to the left that maybe. Be a moderate Democrat like a Tom Swazi can no longer win in a state like New York. Are there enough Swazi Democrats left to give you the nomination for governor? What do you think?
13: My polling shows very clearly that my message is resonating with enough people for me to win this election. The challenge for me is to make sure people vote and make sure I raise enough money so I can get my message out there. Because not everybody knows my message, what it is. So I've got to do radio shows in the middle of the night. Sure. I've got to raise the money. I've got to do telephone town halls. I've got to travel the state. I've got to go from morning to noon to late at night. Uh, and that's what I'm doing. But I find that people are are, are coming around to my message. Uh, so, listen, I'm a Democrat. I've always been a Democrat. I'm not ashamed of being a Democrat. I'm proud to be a Democrat. Uh, I've gotten all kinds of awards for my work on the environment, on immigration, on uh, human rights, on uh, labor, on uh, a whole bunch of issues. But my party is not talking about the things that people care about. And right now, Democrats, independents, Republicans in New York State are concerned about crime, taxes, affordability, and corruption. Every, That's what they want us to
2: address. Everything, uh, as I've said publicly and to you privately, I've been an admirer of yours since those uh, fix Albany days. And I said to you at the time that you were running for governor in 06 that, uh, you know, I wish that there was a way for me to vote for you in the general election. Now, I'm listening to you on gerrymandering. I agree with every word you said. Crime, completely agree. Cost of living, taxes, the Buffalo Bills boondoggle, ethics reform, uh, the, the Albany culture of corruption in general right now there's uh, independent nominating petitions going on why should voters like me who happen to be not democrats be the, denied the opportunity to vote for tom swazi would you consider circulating the signatures necessary so that all new Yorkers can vote for you in november
13: you know it's just not a practical reality it would be an enormous expense i can't afford to spend the money and i can it would hurt me in my efforts to win the Democratic nomination. So I'm running as a Democrat in the Democratic primary. Uh, I'm running as a common sense Democrat. I intend to win the primary, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to vote for me in the general when I'm on the ballot. And, so, uh, and go
2: you're going to get to debate uh, Governor Hochul and Jamani Williams at least twice, right?
13: I'm hoping it'll be at least six times, because if I get a chance to debate her, uh, people are going to see there's a clear choice uh, between me, who's a proven executive, common sense Democrat, who's focused on crime and taxes and corruption and affordability and troubled schools and Governor Hochul, who's just failing in the job that she's doing.
2: Uh, Two quick things that your detractors have brought up, uh, not only on this program, but elsewhere that I want to give you an opportunity to address the House Ethics Committee announced that uh, it was probing uh, your finances related to uh, your reporting of stock investments. Should that give New Yorkers any pause that maybe you're not the uh, ethics reformer that uh, that you would like to be seen as in the campaign?
13: I've been in public life off and on for almost 30 years. I've never had a whiff of scandal related to anything I've done. Uh, this ethics thing is that, I filed all of my annual reports. I disclosed every transaction that my brokers did. My brokers have complete discretion. I have no say whatsoever over what they buy and sell. Uh, but I didn't do the periodic disclosures. I didn't think I was required to do the periodic disclosures because of the fact that I have my brokers have complete discretion. After five years of my accountant talking to the Committee on Ethics and reviewing my annual disclosures every year, before I submitted them, they said, oh, no, you're supposed to be doing periodic disclosures as well. I said, well, I don't think we're supposed to because we uh, – I don't have any discretion. It's all my broker's discretion. No, you have to do it anyway. So I said, okay, we're going to do it. And we've done it. We've complied, uh, and we're doing it going on a going-forward basis as well as all the, all the past years. Uh, so it's just the same thing that's been going on for a while. So it's getting more attention now because – Got the locals starting to get worried about my race.
2: Uh, talking with Tom Swazi, Democratic candidate for governor. Do, do you know at this point whether the primary for governor will be June 28th or if it'll be pushed back to August? I'm not
13: 100% certain, but I'm reasonably sure that the, the governor's primary will still be on June 28th.
2: I see. Well, and it would make sense. Those districts aren't affected. Uh, the other thing that a number of our listeners uh, have brought up because uh, our colleagues in the morning have been talking about it as you were on uh, with Bernie and Sid and you seemed to say that you understood the rationale behind Florida passing the so-called don't say gay bill. And then uh, those guys say that in the coming days after the controversy surrounding it, you backed off that position a little bit. I don't want to spend too much time about it because you're not running for governor of Florida, but just so people... people... People know where you are on this. What is your take on Florida's law restricting discussion of sexual identity in schools?
13: So I don't know if it was Bernie or Sid that asked me, but they asked me, they said, do you think we should be teaching kids in kindergarten and first grade about sex and genitalia? I said, no, I don't think we should. I think it's a very reasonable law to not do that. Uh, When I said that, there was a firestorm because people said, you know, and I made it clear on that same show. I said, listen, I've always supported LGBTQ rights. Uh, I've got a hundred percent rating from the human rights campaign. Uh, you know, I want to treat people like human beings and treat them fairly and equally. Uh, there was a firestorm after that show. I said, listen, that law is much more than that. You can't treat, teach sex education in kindergarten and first grade. Anyway, in Florida it was, you, you can't teach that sex education until fifth grade. And you can't teach that in most states. The, the problem with the law from many people from the LGBTQ community and and others, myself included, is that if a kid comes into class and they've got two mommies or two daddies and they're getting bullied uh, by the other kids, the teacher can't try and talk about why it's okay to have two mommies or two daddies. And so for people who don't trust teachers, they say, oh, I don't want you to indoctrinate my kids. For people who do trust teachers, they say, listen, I would like the teacher to try and stop the kid from being bullied and you know they're not going to talk about sex education in kindergarten or first grade so i made it very clear i don't support the law i don't support what desantis is trying to do uh in dividing people uh and i still think it's reasonable that you not teach kids in kindergarten and first grade about sex education and about genitalia so uh you know i was very inartful in the way i described it when i was on the show
2: Finally I am uh, now a a father albeit of a 5 month old and, and I think a lot of fathers of sons Think that once their son becomes a professional baseball player, they immediately go into the <laughs> fatherhood Hall of Fame. The last time I saw you was at the uh, Brooklyn Cyclones game uh, last season. Your son <laughs> is actually playing for the Brooklyn Cyclones. What's it like yep. to have a son that's a professional baseball player? It's got to be it's the incredible thing in the world.
13: pressure for him and for me <laughs> and for his mother. I mean, it's just it's incredible pressure. We're so proud of him. He's been through so much, so many ups and downs. Uh, it's an amazing accomplishment, but it's a lot of pressure. But you know, we love all our kids; they're all great. Uh, but this is a, a real accomplishment on his part. We're very
11: proud of him, uh,
2: Congressman. I appreciate you taking the time at such an odd hour. Best of luck to you. We'll be checking in with you a great deal for the next two months, and uh, probably for the next six and a half months. Thanks so much.
13: Thank you, Frank. You you really you really got a good way about you and. You- you really know your stuff. Good job.
2: Whenever you feel uh, a little insomnia coming on, come in studio and we'll take some calls from folks as well.
13: Thank you, my friend. Good luck with that five-month-old.
2: Thank you very much. If you want to comment on any portion of my discussion with Tom Swazi, give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. We'll do 15 seconds of fame coming up. Be heard on any subject. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
16: WABC.
2: Days are long when the sun goes down. My thanks to Stevie G and the TMC band for this theme song. It's terrific. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. There's a lot of people that have been waiting to talk to me on other topics. I don't feel like it's fair to them, because they've been holding, to lump them in with the 15 seconds. So if you're already on for something other than 15 seconds of fame... Then I would just ask that you try to be brief. We're going to get through. We're going to get through all of you, and then as those lines open up, we're going to grandfather those people in, and then we'll do fifteen seconds of fame in about three minutes. All right. Uh, Troy is in Mountain Lakes. Hello, Troy. Yeah. Hi,
11: Frank. Uh, uh, I'm listening to this Swazi. Is clearly a psychiatrically unstable individual. Hasn't he been recently caught contradicting himself about this? Uh, about this. Uh, uh, um
2: pedophile teachers well that i mean i asked him about it you heard his answer
11: no i didn't hear his answer i heard him
2: say i, I, right, I heard well, him say he's still against he's
11: still against uh people mentioning sex to kindergarten and first grade it's not about kindergarten and first grade it's about all the way, all the way through right, elementary well, school I, I
2: asked him the question you could take issue with his answer it is what it is 800-848-WABC. Wayne is in Hempstead. Hello, Wayne.
12: Yes, uh, thank you very much for taking my call. Uh, I would, would love to have spoken to him directly. Listen, uh, I live in Nassau County. He was not that great. i an executive number one. Uh, he's a very nice family man. He's a gentleman. He's got a beautiful family, all of that. His record in Washington, D.C. as a congressman, forget about it. He has followed everything Pelosi and the rest of the crew wants. The squad, you name it, he's all in on that. I'm I'm sorry you didn't get into the fact of abortion with him. I don't know where he stands on that. But, you know. Well, he's pro-choice, I'm sure. What?
2: I'm sure he's pro-choice.
12: Well, yeah. So, you know, he's not bringing anything New York State different than Hochul. And, yeah, you heard him. He's going to have all these town halls and all this stuff. I've been on his, you know, his nightly, you know, sometimes he'll have a little call in. You can't even talk to him. You know, he takes the calls from specified. Forget about that. It's not important. It's not happening. We need, let's put it this way. We need the total rollover. We have a state assembly, and I don't want to take up all the time because you have other people. The state assembly is a complete mess. You know, do you know that in the middle of the night they they cheered? They cheered to have abortion right through, and after the nine months, delivery. You know, I'll leave for another night because there's so many great callers. So I, I give you respect. You did a great job on it. Uh, you, you know, you gave them the what for as far as wanting to vote for him, I don't
2: know. <laughs> well, uh, well, thanks, Wayne. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that I gave him the what for. I tried to ask challenging questions that I thought people would want to know the answers to and that people can make uh, their own conclusions. I do wish he was running as an independent, not a Democrat, though. I mean, I, he had no reason he can't run as an independent and a Democrat. All right. we um, We'll do one more person who's been uh, waiting a while, and then we'll do 15 seconds of fame. Joseph's in Newburgh. Hello, Joseph. Oh, I'm here. Go ahead, Joseph. You know, sometimes, can you hear me? Yeah, Joseph, be heard. We don't have a lot of time.
7: All right, quick. Sometimes they get annoyed uh, with the topics you pick, but tonight you just get made a decision for me. Uh, I'm going to, I'm not going to be cremated. I'm going to have a big party and uh, I'm going to celebrate two of my favorite foundations and anybody that wants to attend can buy a raffle ticket. And at the end, All my antique clock collection goes to one person, and my antique uh, 54 Pontiac will go to the second person, and I'll pay for their insurance for a year and gas
2: for a year. Uh, That's very creative.
7: dollars worth of gas. I love it. uh, My two favorite foundations are Animal Shelters here in Newburgh and Home for Anders, which is Autistic Men. Uh, here in, in Newburgh. Joseph, it sounds yeah. like
2: two great causes. It sounds like a great idea. All right. Uh, by the way, we're still running our contest to whoever retweets my photo with uh, Governor Patterson and Judge Jeanine Pirro and with the best comment. So you got to retweet it and then make a comment as you retweet. It's on my Twitter, at Frank Morano. We'll give you 24 hours, and then we'll pick a winner tomorrow, at Frank Morano, because I know some people listen to the podcast. So far, the best one we have is the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> That's not bad. All right. Without further ado, it's time for
1: the other side of midnight. This
0: is fifteen seconds of fame.
2: Neil, hello.
0: God bless the United States Coast Guard, who for twenty four seven put their
10: lives on the line to save the lives of people.
2: Leo, hello.
10: Good morning, Frank. Until my age fifty, when my wife passed away and was buried in the in the grave. I was positive, I'm just gonna
2: get burned and- Thank you, Leo. Uh, Frank Moreno, good day!